Hello, and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Evan. And I'm Chad. And you're joining us today for our recap and discussion of Dead House Gates, Volume 2 of The Malazan Book of the Fallen by Stephen Erickson. Today we will be covering Book 4 of Dead House Gates, Dead House Gates. In the, in the episode before this, you and I had discussed how we had our hopes set pretty high for Chain of Dogs. We had just, we had both already read this book and we were like, oh, here comes Chain of Dogs. This is the coolest part. We were both totally wrong. The really awesome stuff, or I guess awesome is kind of a, a generous word here, but the, the really exciting stuff happens in this book. My notes literally says, start off by talking to Evan about how we mistakenly took <laughs> oh, <really>? the last <laughs> book for this one. Yeah, because this one was just, with the exception of a few awesome battles that we got during the Chain of Dogs, this one was takes the cake. I mean, it gets a little twisted with some of the uh, storylines and like some weird ships and uh, lots of betraying. But man, this book ends with a swing and a hit. Yeah, like, the, wow. the last hundred pages of this book, I really couldn't put it down. I feel kind of like I just finished it recently, like in the last day, like today, I finished the last um, couple chapters of this book. And I'm like kind of my my brain, it just feels kind of like soup right now. I just even though I've already read this book once, I, there's just so much going on here. And I think I have a pretty good grasp on everything, except for with Malazan, it's just some of the more subtle things, like some of the things that are kind of like hinted at by Ascaral Pus or by Haboric, um, or maybe like Mapo kind of like remembering stuff. And it, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of grasping it, but I need another book set in this part of the world and more uh, revelation from different characters and stuff before I feel like I've, I really understand like more of the kind of like nuance of what's going on here, you know? Totally well said. Yeah, there's a lot of nuance. I mean, even down to Shaikh not being reborn, but being remade. There's like really subtle things that are in there that you're like, okay, like, like you said, we don't have the full picture right now. And there's just, it's hard to catch some of those things, though. I do feel like my comprehension level was higher the second time through, as always, of course, the second time. Uh, yeah, let's do the recap and um, we'll talk more about the, the nuance that neither of us understand. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> Our tale begins on the Ragstopper. Kalam sees High Fist Pormqual's seal on several items being loaded on board. A sailor tells Kalam their last job was hauling weapons for Tavor's fleet. When Kalam asks about an escort, the sailor informs him that Pormqual has commanded Nox's fleet to stay in Aaron Harbor. Across the bay, a Malazan transport is unloading horses. The captain arrives, accompanied by a man and his two bodyguards. Salk Ilan appears behind Kalam, catching the assassin unawares and identifies the man as Pormqual's treasurer. Questioned, Ilan tells him he arranged Kalam's passage to pay off an obligation to Mebra, the spy in Erlitan who gave Kalan the holy book. Kalam suspects Ilan is a mage and a good fighter. Captain Solmar presses Coltane to listen to the noble's suggestion of retaking Uberid. Solmar asks Duerker for his take on the matter, and the historian explains why Uberid would be a disaster. He also points out that Corbolo is an actual general, whereas Rilo was just a mage who counted on his numbers to win battles. Bolt mockingly suggests getting yet another opinion from Bent, the ugly cattle dog. Lowell and Duiker pass the herds of animals which will be slaughtered at the river, since the land beyond, seemingly empty of spirits, will not sustain them. He thinks how they will sense their impending deaths as they near, then thinks again of the horse killed by Nil and Nether. 
Lull tells Duiker it's rumored the children's hands are permanently stained black with the mare's blood. Duiker muses that the Wiccans know power never comes free. Lull tells him he actually wants Corbolo to come just to end it all, that he cannot see whatever hope Coltane does. Duiker answers that he doesn't believe Coltane is hopeful any longer. When Lull compares them to the herds waiting for slaughter, Duiker answers that unfortunately, people don't get the gift of mindlessness, and Lull will find no salvation there. Lull replies he doesn't want salvation, just a way to keep going. They arrive at a meeting between the seventh and the former slaves. He gives them uniforms and a medallion with a cattle dog's head on it, and tells them that last night the nobles tried to buy them back, and Coltane refused, for they were soldiers of the seventh now, not slaves. Lull tells Duiker that as slaves they might have survived, but as soldiers they will certainly die, and tells Duiker to make sure he writes of this. Duiker thinks Lull is now a broken man. Haborik tells Felicen that Leoman and Toblakai are ready to move on to Shaikh's oasis, and that he and Felicen need them to survive, whether or not she opens the book. Felicen tells him that Shaikh's rebellion will call down a retributive army that will inevitably be led by her sister. She tells Leoman they'll head out, but she won't open the book yet. En route, Haborik says Raraku continues to reveal her secrets to him, which angers Leoman. Haborik is able to see the numerous spirits the Toblakai killed riding in his wake. Though the Toblakai sneers, he pales at Haborik's words. As they continue on, they observe heaps of shattered pottery. Haborik says he knows of scholars who claim they can map entire extinct cultures through the study of pottery shards. Felison tells him one cannot be remade until one is broken, and asks if Haborik has learned any truths. He replied he's learned the only truth is there are no truths. Leoman retorts Raraku and the Whirlwind are truths, as weapons and blood. Out of earshot, Borak tells Felicen it's clear to him that Leoman doesn't entirely believe she's Shaikh reborn, and theorizes the warrior merely wants her as a figurehead. She claims she is not concerned. They bicker back and forth, Felicen concluding if they are to understand each other, it will be without words. When he asks why she elected to keep him around, she says it's for Bowden. Heboric says he hopes she and him will, in fact, one day understand each other. They come to an ancient harbor, where they find several corpses killed by a shapeshifter. Toblakai goes to hunt the foe, when Heboric says the giant will be killed. Leoman tells him that Shaikh saw far into his future, and what she saw appalled her. He then explains to Felicen she must undergo a ritual before she can enter the city, and when she does, the visions will be hers. He also explains that she will be killed in the ritual if she is not Shaikh reborn. Fiddler and company reach an ancient island rising above a desert plain, which had once been an ancient bay. Mappo and Fiddler watch Akarium climb an old seawall, the latter noticing that it looks like Akarium knows his way around, the former answering that Akarium has wandered this land before. The trail is concerned at what appears to be Akarium's increasing recall. Following Akarium's lead, Fiddler tells Crocus the city died long before the sea dried up and recalls how when the Emperor dragged Malaz Bay, old sea walls were revealed, showing the city to be far older than he thought. Mappo adds, It was also to demonstrate that the sea levels had risen since then. Looking down from the seawall, they are able to discern the cause of the city's demise via destruction by cataclysmic force and fury. He locates Akarium in the center, where seven massive scorpion sting thrones had been destroyed by sword blows. 
by an unbreakable weapon in hands powered by a rage almost impossible to comprehend. All offerings and tributes had been destroyed, save a single mechanism, one of Akarium's time-measuring devices. Akarium asks Mappo why is this excluded from the destruction, and says that if he reads it right, the device was brought here 94,000 years ago. He asks who destroyed the city. From the signs, it was someone powerful. Something even a Jagut couldn't do. Perhaps the Kachain Chamale. But they were already extinct. Fiddler suggests it must have been an ascendant. A god or goddess. One who has drifted long from mortal minds because he can't think of a known one that would unleash such power on the mortal plane. Ikarium replies, They could but choose rather to be more subtle in their meddling with mortals. The old ways proving too dangerous. Mappo flashes back to when he was assigned the task of being Ikarium's guardian. He'd asked his tribe, Shoulder Woman, about the Nameless Ones. She told him they were once sworn to a god cast down in the time of the First Empire. They were the left hand. Another sacked the right hand. Mysteries of another led them astray. They bowed to a new master. They leave the ancient island and continue their pursuit of Absalar and her father. Mappo realizes they are no longer heading for Shaikh, but for Tremorlor. Crocus, who has been waiting and watching, discovers a scarl pust shadowing them. Amidst pust ravings, he details how his deceit has been successful, and that the key was to knowing that the Warrens can be torn into fragments, and that Fiddler's group has been wondering more than one world. Mappo remembers legends that Ikarium came from Iraku, and wonders if the broken Warren is where Ikarium's long nightmare began. They catch up to Absalar and her father on the threshold of what is a knotted, torn piece of Warren, according to Pust, into which his false path of hands has led the shapeshifters. When Crocus asks why they were led here, Pust says, Servants will use what lies in the Warren to return home. Mappo senses that while the aura or echo of a god still clings to Absalar, she had made it all on her own. Ikarium discusses with Mappo the possible truth in rumors that the Azath are a benign force to keep power in check and arise when needed. Mappo theorizes internally that the torn Warren Pust references would wander and deliver horror and chaos were it held fast by Tremorlor. Absalar's father, who reveals his name to be Relic, asks them to convince Absalar to go no further and explain he only led them there to pay his debt to Pust and Shadow Throne for sparing Absalar's life. The party consent and Pust's last words, which he believes are out of earshot, are Beware sleight of hand compared to the Azath. My immortal lords are but fumbling children. The chain nears the river Vathar. List tells Duiker that the head of Corbolodom's army has been spotted trying to beat them to the river, and that Duiker is to ride ahead of the chain with the foolish dog clan. At a meeting, Coltane asks Duiker if he has ever seen the Sapper Captain. The Fist is beginning to wonder if they even have one. Nether joins Duiker to ride ahead. The forest is filled with swarms of migrating butterflies, which Duiker hopes might slow Dom's army. But Nether tells him a mage is clearing their path by opening a warren and letting the butterflies vanish into it. They reach the river crossing and spot a burned ship resting in the waters. Duiker recognizes Gessler and Stormy from when he and Kolp were in the village. He notices they, in truth, have a strange bronze coloring to their skin. Dom's advance arrives and sets up a camp nearby. 
rather than attacking. Their advance begins cutting down trees. Duiker tries to convince Stormy and Gessler they're back in the army now. Stormy and Gessler tells them about Salanda, the headless Tisti Andai, and undead rowers, and how they had recovered, but then lost Haborik and the others. They decide to scout Dom's group using the dory of the Salanda. They observe Dom sending archers and soldiers across the river via ropes spanning the cliffs. The rest of Dom's forces arrive, felling more trees and set up on both sides of the river crossing. Duiker wonders why the rogue fist hasn't attacked, and Nether guesses he's waiting for Coltane to show off as the matter appeals personal, given Coltane's promotion over him. Nether says that Salanda will take as many wounded as it can to Arryn. She relays Coltane's question to Duiker, asking if the historian wants to accompany them. When Duiker immediately says no, she tells him Coltane said that would be the response and wonders how Coltane knows people so well, adding he's much a mystery to the Wiccans as he is to the Malazans. Coltane arrives. He, Lowell, Bolt, and others meet with Stormy and Gessler. Lowell says he knows of Gessler being demoted, first from captain to sergeant and now corporal, and recalls Stormy was once part of the Emperor's old guard. Gessler threatens to punch Lowell if he even thinks about promoting him. He makes the same threat to Bolt and Coltane consecutively. Coltane punches Gessler and breaks his hand in the process, though he does bloody and break Gessler's nose as well. Nil senses from Gessler's blood that the corporal has nearly ascended. As if this to compound the revelation, it says much that Coltane was able to hurt him. A messenger arrives from Dom and offers to allow the refugees to cross the river unhindered. The nobles agree, giving Duiker suspicions that they have already been in communication with Dom's army. Coltane, hackles high, rejects the offer. Stormy tells Gessler things don't seem right. Gessler and his group say goodbye and tell them they'll try to convince Pormqual to help them. Stormo asks Duiker about Lis Visions and says, the warlocks sense nothing of the land. Duiker tells them there was a war fought there and list visions of it come from a Jagood ghost. Tumlet arrives and tells them another messenger from Dom arrived, secretly, and the nobles and refugees are going to cross. Coltane tells his leaders to not consent to the crossing, and orders Duiker to send the sappers into the refugee group. Dom's army has made a floating bridge packed with pikemen and archers. The rebels start slaughtering the refugees when they're blocked at the ford, and the army is engaged in the rearguard. The arrows eventually taper off as the rebels run out of arrows. At the same time, the sappers push back on one side. Dom hadn't planned on the soldiers coming through with the refugees, and the archers are only lightly armed. The desperate refugees attack the floating bridge when it nears them, and the bridge sinks. Sormo uses sorcery to kill the rebels, and is in turn killed in the process. Butterflies and the hundreds of thousands converge on him. The refugees swarm Dom's soldiers in the same spot that Duiker happens to be in. Felicin tells Leoman she will not dance to Shaikh's music. The Toblakai returns having killed a giant white bear. Leoman pressures Felicin to perform the ritual. Felicin intones that the Toblakai is pure faith yet shall one day lose it all. Heboric will rediscover faith. Leoman is a master deceiver, but searches always for hope despite his cynicism. And Felicin is as a crucible newly emptied. She orders Leoman to open the book. He does so, but sees nothing but blank pages. She orders the Tobakai to open it, and he weeps when he looks upon it. Heboric refuses to look at it or touch it. Toblakai urges Felicin to allow him to kill Heboric and let his blood seal this ritual. She confirms his request, knowing the giant will be unable to harm the exiled historian. Nevertheless, the Toblakai reacts instantly, lashing out at Heboric's head with his wooden sword. Heboric catches the Toblakai's wrist and sends the sword flying. 
Then he throws the Tobakai into the darkness. Felicin tells Haboric he was never forsaken. He was being prepared. Fiddler's group crosses a threshold into a forest. They see a huge boulder with a red hand and paw prints on it. Mappo accuses Pust of this being evidence of the priest's further deception, but Ikarium says the markings are real and of Talon origins, associated with the Talon Imas, though the boulder is usually found on a hilltop. Pust wonders aloud if Mappo's sack is another piece of the warren. They progress further and Mappo takes note of how the number of roots don't match the number of trees. There are too many roots. They come to a plain at the end of the forest, covered in roots lacking trees. Iskarl Pust announcing they have reached their destination. Tremalor! Ikarium senses the Azeth is under siege by the shapeshifters. Fiddler orders them to make camp for rest before continuing on. In the night, Mappo overhears Ikarium and Absalar in conversation. Absalar says they are both alike, with protectors who can't truly protect them, especially from themselves. Akarium says it's different with he and Mappo. Absalar asks him what he'll do with his memories when he finds them, and rather than answer, he asks her, What do you do with yours? She says most of them aren't actually hers. She has a handful of her own, some from a wax witch who protected her, and Cotillians. She says Cotillian killed to rectify affairs and perceived himself as honorable and ironically felt sympathy for Lassine, somewhere amidst his desire for vengeance against her. When Akarium replies, he'd accept that burden, she tells him not to say that to Mappo, unless he wants to break Mappo's heart. Akarium says, I don't understand, but would never do that to Mappo. He repeats, he doesn't understand, and when Absalar says, yet you wish to, he weeps. Mappo thinks the nameless one, his tribal elders, and even his younger self would have given Akarium up to the Azath, due to the risk he offers the world but now he is unsure he can. Ikarium senses Mappo at war with himself and tells him, I would give up my life for you, calling him my only friend, my brother. Mappo reveals the truth of the first empire city to Ikarium, that Ikarium has destroyed entire cities and peoples and that Mappo's job is to prevent him from doing so again. Ikarium says, the Azath know this and must accordingly take him prisoner calling it a suitable punishment. He requests that he be allowed to be taken without resistance. The others intuit what transpired between Ikarium and Mappo. Fiddler tells him it was inevitable. Ikarium tells them all to make no effort to save him should the house try and imprison him. Pust asks if he can fight without losing control. And Mappo says he does indeed have a threshold. Fiddler tells Ikarium to hold himself back until the others have done all they can do. When Pust objects, Crocus asks him to consider the possibilities of what will happen if Ikarium kills the Azath. The very idea stuns Ikarium. Shadow Throne sends the five hounds of Shadow. Ikarium says he welcomes them, and they enter the house's maze. Two privateers are following the Ragstopper. Kalam finds himself perplexed by the captain of the ship. The man seems to speak in riddles, and Kalam thinks of a warren he's heard of that can lay a glamour on one's mind. Alon tries to engage Kalam in conversation, but Kalam refuses. He goes up top to find the crew preparing for a storm, as well as using the storm to turn on the pirates. The captain tells Kalam, It'll be a knife for knife work. <laughs> Ragstopper rams a pirate vessel and a battle ensues. Kalam finds the first mate with his throat cut, 
and the captain wounded in a fight to the death with one of the treasurer's bodyguards. Elan helps Kalam with the captain. The two agree to work together. Kalam gets the marines and crew ready. Elan kills the other bodyguard, and they lure the raiders in with a knife to the back of the treasurer. And then Carl appears on board via a pirate mage and starts killing marines. Kalam severely wounds the Encarl so the marines can kill it, while Elan deals with the mage. The battle ends in victory. They load the treasure with sacks of coin and unceremoniously toss him overboard. The captain seems overly affected by his wound and has difficulty verbalizing his thoughts. Kalam again gets the sense the captain is trying to tell him something. More marines have died despite having a ship's healer. They appear to be moving due to trade winds, but the captain tells Kalam there aren't any in this area. Kalam again thinks of the glamour warren. Felicin puts on Shaikh's clothing. Layamon still doesn't fully trust she is Shaikh reborn and continues to press the ritual. Felicin puts him off. He warns her the High Mages will be trouble, and she expresses her awareness of the fact. Fiddler and company come across the bodies of four nameless ones, who appeared to be guarding the entrance. Akarium, looking at their stave, says he's seen these before in a dream, which he then recounts. He arrives at the edge of a trail town that has been utterly destroyed, with great ravens feasting on the corpses. A nameless one appears, and from the power still pouring from her staff, Akarium realizes she has destroyed the town. She tells Akarium he must not wonder alone. Her words recall horrible memories of past companions, countless in number, sometimes individuals and sometimes large groups, all of them betrayed and all of them eventually failing in their task of keeping Akarium from doing what he does. He wonders if he himself killed many of them. The Nameless One's staff flares and Akarium finds himself alone with his pain and memory is gone. He wakens from the dream. Mappo thinks it's impossible. Someone has tainted Akarium's dreams. Fiddler views hordes of arms and limbs and demon ascendants, and various other entities caught in Tremorlor's roots. They can hear battles on all sides of them as they move through the maze, along with the Azath's roots and branches being broken. Fiddler looks at how close Blind stays to Akarium. He thinks he and Mappo are both suspicious that Shadowthrone struck a deal with the Azath in which it wouldn't take the hounds, and they aid in the taking of Akarium. Suddenly, Mesrem charges forth and attacks an Encarl Soltaken who was about to attack the group mere seconds before. Mappo kills the Soltaken, but Rude attacks Mesrem and pushes him against the maze wall where he is held by a green-skinned arm around his neck. Rude tears one of Mesrem's arms off as Mappo is restrained by Akarium from running to the aid of his friend. Akarium tries to comfort Mappo, telling him he is being killed by the arm and will thus escape the fate of eternal imprisonment in the Azath. Fiddler starts to believe there is no way they can survive with thousands of shapeshifters converging here. Only the strongest will survive to the end to reach them. Ikarium senses Grillin coming and grows enraged at the divers disregarding his warning. Mappo tries to restrain him. Fiddler is terrified by the magnitude of Akarium's rage, and turns to see Grillin approaching as a seething, swarming wall. Fiddler's group retreats. Grillin has grown to encompass thousands or tens of thousands of rats, but end up trapped. Ikarium throws Mappo to the ground and draws his sword. The sky reddens and forms a vortex. Sean attacks Ikarium, but gets swatted aside like a ragdoll. Fiddler reaches into his munitions bag for one of his last cussers and throws it unaware that it was in fact the conch shell from the Tano spirit walker, Kimlock. Music fills the air and the tides turn as Grillin attempts to retreat, but begins withering away as he is devoured, fueling the power of the song. All members of the party are thrown to the ground. 
the hounds cringing, Akarium knocked unconscious by Mappo. A wall of water appears filled with the wreckage of the past, the remains of sunken ships, ancient metals, bones, and the wave buries them and disappears, the music absent. Fiddler looks up to see the hounds surrounding the unconscious Akarium and Mappo standing over his body to protect him. Fiddler tells Pust to call them off. Pust argues, Ikarium's imprisonment was part of the bargain. Fiddler shows Pust his bag and says he'll fall on his own cusser and kill the hounds if they don't back off. Pust looks to Absalar, but she agrees with Fiddler. They see the house just ahead, and Mappo gently picks up Akarium and carries him away. Felicin's group is stopped by a young girl standing guard at the entrance to Sheikh's Oasis camp. She is an orphan, and thus nameless. Felicin says if they will fight and die for her, all the orphans have earned names, and she herself will speak for them all. Heboric says the ancient city was destroyed by invaders. Leoman tells them there are 40,000 of the best-trained cavalry the world has ever seen. Heboric says it doesn't matter as the Malazan Empire always adapts its tactics, pointing out it's already defeated horse cultures before, citing the examples of the Wiccans. A crowd begins to gather and follow them, drawn by Felicin. Over Leoman's objections, Felicin decides to address the crowd. Felicin wonders at how the goddess has been so amenable to a deal with Felicin. She will grant power to Felicin, yet allow Felicin to remain Felicin, seemingly confident she'll eventually give in. She tells the crowd that all but Arryn have been liberated, and the Empress has sent a fleet commanded by her adjunct. She tells the crowd they will march, and then raises the whirlwind into a giant column of dust and sand that towers overhead as the standard of Shaikh's army. The Vathar Crossing will later come to be known as the Day of Pure Blood, as well as the Season of Sharks, and that it would hone the deadly edge of Tor, a woman hard as iron. Coltane has suffered casualties of over 20,000 refugees at the crossing, a disproportionate number of children amongst them. 700 soldiers of the 7th, a scant dozen engineers remain as well as only a score of marines, and less than 500 fighters remain in the Foolish Dog Clan. These losses are compounded by the loss of Sormo. Within the one man, eight elder warlocks, a loss of not just power but knowledge, experience and wisdom, a blow that has driven the Wiccans to their knees. Dom continues to harass them. Progressing through the forest, they see Talon and Mass skulls in the trees left over from the ancient war in Lists' dreams. The survivors of that war carried the Talon and Mass too shattered to go on here and hung them in the trees to watch, rather than bury the immortals in the ground. They also pass cairns topped with skulls marking places where the Jagut turned and fought. Duokur and List find Coltane, Bolt, and Lull in the vanguard with the sappers. Coltane tells the sappers, Due to their repeated bravery, several clan leaders have asked to adopt them. He says he had them withdraw their offers as he assumed this is what the sappers would want. He says he will instead follow the traditions of the Empire and promote one who shows natural leadership to the rank of sergeant. Lull and the others are informed by another sapper that Coltane actually just demoted the man since he had been their captain. When asked why he never attended staff briefings, Bungle says that Mincer needed beauty sleep. List shows Duokur a ruined tower nearby and tells him it was a Jagut, explaining to the historian that they lived alone as they feared each other as much as they feared the Talon and Mass. He says the tower is a few hundred millennia old, and that they were pushed back by the Talon and Mass to tower after tower after tower, the last in the heart of the plain beyond the forest. Duokur asks if this was a typical Jagut de Mass war, and List answers it was atypical. There existed a unique bond among the Jagut family, and that when the mother was endangered, the children and father joined the battle and things escalated. 
Duke her muses, she must have been special. List agrees and says that it is her mate who is his ghost guide. Suddenly, they feel something and spot Shaikh's column rising through the sky. Later, the army passes the first Jagut tomb in the form of a tilted stone slab. List tells Duiker it was the youngest son, his face twisted in prolonged anguish and genuine grief. Duiker realizes List's ghosts have been watching over the tomb and grieving in torture for 200,000 years. List says the boy was five when he was dragged to this spot, where all his bones were shattered. He was then pinned beneath the rock. This was done because killing him would have cost the Talan a mass too much. Duiker realizes the army is working in near silence. List says the father's grief drove all the spirits away and hangs over all of them like a pall. He suggests moving quickly through the land, though he says things only get worse in the plain. He wonders if the Jagu tried to reason or negotiate. List says they did, with the exception of the tyrants, but their innate arrogance stung the Amass. Duiker is skeptical. It would do so enough to drive to the Amass to swear a vow of a mortal war, and List answers that he didn't think the Amass knew how long it would take to kill all the Jagut, that the Jagut never really flaunted their true power. Even when they abused their power, it was often passive and defensive, such as by creating barriers of ice, which the Amass could only survive and pass by becoming dust, promoting the ritual that gave them immortality. Marching onward, the army is attacked by two tribes, the Tregan and the Billord. A third, called the Kundril, await them in a major clash. People are starving. The herd animals are dying, and Dom's army is growing behind them, now five times Coltane's numbers of soldiers. They enter a valley and see two large encampments of the enemy waiting. Lowell tells Duiker that the soldiers are dropping like flies due to thirst, and that he and Duiker both say something feels odd tonight, like maybe Hood's Warren has drawn closer. At a command meeting, Coltane says, Warlocks have sensed something coming tonight. Duiker anticipates tomorrow's battle will be a slaughter by Dom's army. He thinks to suggest that they surrender, but even without him saying it, Coltane looks at him and says, We cannot. Duiker silently agrees that this too must end in blood. The air suddenly changes as the predicted something arrives, three massive carriages arriving out of Hood's Warren. A mage steps out of the lead carriage and tells Coltane his exploits are spoken of with wonder in Darugistan and that the people, alchemists, mages, sorcerers, have arranged with the Trigal Trade Guild to supply the army with food and water. The mage, Carpolin de Massand, is one of the original founders of the Trigal Trade Guild, an alliance of mages that come to specialize in expeditions so risk-laden as to make the average merchants pale. He tells them Hood's Warren is wrapped tight around Coltane's group. The Malazans that were previously going to attack Darugistan are now allies against the Panion Seer, and that Dujek sends his greetings and was the instigator of this resupply. Dujek told the guild, The Emperor cannot lose such leaders as Coltane. A sentiment Carpolo finds odd, coming from an outlaw. Dujek also sent Coltane from Quick Ben a strange bottle for Coltane to wear at all times. When Coltane at first refuses, Carpolin tells him it's an order from Dujek. Coltane questions how he, a Malazan soldier, can be ordered by a Malazan outlaw. Carpolin says, he himself asked Dujek the same question. Dujek's answer was, never underestimate the Empress. All in attendance realized the outlawing was faked so as to ally with Brood and Rake. Coltane takes the bottle and Carpolin tells him, break it against his chest when the time comes. Carpolin says that he will not stay to witness the tragedy of tomorrow's battle and that he has an even more difficult delivery to make. 
He asks if Coltane has anything to say to Jujik, and Coltane says simply, No. A response which startles Duiker, slipping a rough blade of suspicion into him that would remain nagging and fearful. With the food and water, the army rises in the morning in better spirits and shape. Coltane prepares an attempt to punch through the tribes blocking the valley mouth, leading to Arryn. List arrives, saying he feels hope is in the air. The Kundral appear in tens of thousands and send a small group which the Malazan assume will be a personal combat challenge to Coltane. When Duiger tells Coltane it is madness that Coltane is acting like a Wiccan and not a fist, and that Quick's Ben bottle will only work once, Coltane rips it off and throws it at Duiger, arguing, The Kundral war chiefs are not there for combat. However, one of them tells Coltane and his party that the Kundral have long waited for this day to see which of the great tribes of the South Odin is the most powerful, and that Coltane should pay attention to the days unfolding. As Coltane's army gives ground to the Tragen and Billard tribes on one side and Dom's army on the other, the Kundral suddenly attack all three. Dom's army eventually pushes them back, though the tribes among the conventional units were shattered. Meanwhile, the Tragen and Billard are routed. The same Kundral war chief returns and asks if Coltane noted which was the most powerful. Coltane says the Kundral, and the Kundral chief disagrees, saying they lost a Dom. Coltane says it must be Dom then, when the Kundral recognize as the most powerful. The war chief calls him a fool and says, There we all know it's the Wiccans, the Wiccans, the Wiccans. Kalam is unnerved by the strangeness aboard the Ragstopper, the blurry sense of time's passage. The captain's strange illness and seeming attempts to communicate something of importance to Kalam, the suspicion that Elan is a mage, and the unusual storm driving them southeast. He finds fragile moment of privacy and uses a magical stone to contact Quick Ben. Quick Ben speaks to him. He appears to be under some pressure, wherever he is. Kalam asks him to try and sense what is happening aboard the Ragstopper. Quick tells Kalam the assassin is in trouble and the ship stinks of a warren, one of the rarest among mortals and that is its purpose, or one of them is confusion. When Kalam tells Quick that Fiddler and his group are headed for Tremorlor, Quick Ben is upset since he'd suggested that when things were at peace, but something's gone bad there. Every warren's lit up. Kalam mentions the path of hands, and Quick Ben's concern increases. He says he'll try and think of some way to help them, and then trails away, saying, he lost too much blood yesterday. Kalam finds Ilan in the captain's room, Elan tells him the storm is blowing them off course to Malau's city. Elan calls it a legendary cesspool and says he trusts Kalam will be generous enough to show him all the sights. The assassin smiles, saying he can count on it. Mappo is beginning to doubt the story he'd been told of his town's destruction by Akarium. He wonders if it matters since there's no doubt that Akarium has taken countless other lives. He vows the house will not take Akarium, and he will fight it, and any who try to help it do so. Fiddler is concerned about Mappo's focus, but confirms that Mappo is not so caught up in his own plight that he won't help the group if needed. As Fiddler gazes over his group, he realizes that not only Mappo, but all of them will fight to keep Akarium from being taken, foolish as it may be. They can see the effect the assault on Tremorlor is having and can hear the forest being destroyed. Pust claims he just tore apart a shapeshifter. They can see the house now and decide to make a run for it. Absalar leads, saying, A house opened once for Dancer. When asked what it takes, she says, Audacity. Mappo says the conch shell did and is still doing damage to the shapeshifters and may prove enough for the Azath to survive. He asks Fiddler what it was, 
And Fiddler answers he got it from Kimlock, the Tano spirit walker. Mappo deduces Kimlock must have touched Fiddler and learned of his plan to find Tremorlor, and so crafted the shell in accordance. Above them opens a warren with four huge Denrabi in it. Fiddler realizes the one he killed earlier in the book was part of a Ivers. The hounds attack the Denrabi and kill several as the group watch. They run for the house as a swarm of bloodflies head their way. Apsilar tries the door, but it won't open. As Ragstopper nears Mala's city, Ilan tries to convince Kalam to let him help the assassins kill scene. Kalam says he has no intention of trying to kill the Empress, though it doesn't convince Ilan, and then asks Ilan forthright what sorcery is working on this ship. Ilan says they're being tracked by someone who wants to ensure the cargo gets to where it's going. Kalan tells Ilan I'm supposed to make contact with friends outside the deadhouse. Ragstopper enters Mala's harbor just before midnight. Kalam can see a pennant flying above Mok's hold and realizes someone important is here. Kalam is beginning to think the dead house is a possible escape route of last resort if things go wrong here. The crew is strangely asleep aboard the ship and he starts to realize he has by all appearances lost his will and control over his own body. Ilan appears beside him and tells Kalam his mind now betrays him. He continues introducing himself as Pearl and speaking at length about how Kalam is legend among the Claw and that Kalam would have been the head of the Claw had he not left, no matter what Topper thinks. He informs Kalam that the Red Blades assassinated Shaikh shortly after Kalam delivered the book and that the Empress is here to have a conversation with Kalam. However, the Claw takes care of its own business. He then stabs Kalam to weaken him and warns him three hands wait in the city for him ready to start the hunt. He is tossed overboard. Pearl's last words to Kalam communicate that he views it as shame that he has to now kill the captain and crew. Apt suddenly appears with Panek on her shoulders and strikes Pearl. He conjures an imperial demon then leaves. Panek urges Apt to be quick with this one. Pust, Mappo, and Crocus all try unsuccessfully to open Tremorlor's door. The Deiver's bloodflies are heading for them, getting closer and closer. Akariam awakens and draws his sword. The hounds and Deivers reach the house's yard together and the grounds erupt, reaching for both. Fiddler tries the door as Mappo attempts to hold back Akarium, but it will not open. Moby then climbs down Fiddler's arm and opens the door. They all enter the house with Akarium lapsing back into unconsciousness. Pust tells them, The hounds helped Tremorlor take the divers before escaping. They look down and see a long-dead corpse on the floor. When they wonder where Moby is, Pust claims the Bokarl is a soul taken. Absalar says the corpse is probably the last keeper, explaining that every house has a guardian, and Mappo identifies it as a folk rule assail. Absalar says the layout of Tremorlor is the same as the dead house in Mala City. Moby returns. Pust tells Mappo to let the Avas have a carium while he's unconscious, but Mappo refuses. The next moment, the great carriages of the Trigal Trade Guild have arrived. Out of the now quiet yard led by Carpolo Damasand, who tells them he's there at the behest of Quick Ben, and he delivers a box of munitions to Fiddler and departs. Absalar theorizes that Moby thought he'd found the Path of Hands, drawn by the promise of ascendancy, which was partly true due to the Azath's need of a new guardian. Fiddler tells them they need to look for a portal, which links to all the Azath, and Absalar gives directions thanks to Cotillion's memories. Moby leads them. They pass a huge suit of armor, which Moby seems highly taken with. They come across another body, this one a young woman, whom Absalar identifies as Dasim Ultor's daughter. She says Dasim recovered her after Hood was done using her. She is described with vicious wounds crisscrossing her slight form. 
and brought here to the Azath before breaking his vow to Hood and cursing him. Absalar says the portal isn't far, and when asked, both Mappo and Pust say they'll join the group, though Mappo says he'll likely exit at a different spot. Pust mumbles that he'll look for a chance of betrayal. They say goodbye to Moby, and Crocus realizes Moby had been protecting them through the storms. When he worries Moby will be lonely, Absalar says there are other houses and other guardians. After they head for the portal, Moby goes back to the suit of armor, from which a voice tells him, I am pleased my solitude is at an end, little one. Tremorlor welcomes you with all its heart, even if you have made a mess on the hallway floor. Duwaker is in the midst of a counterattack against Corbolodom's forces, who have been constantly and relentlessly raiding since the surprise attack by the Kundril three days ago. The chain is down to 5,000 soldiers, who are dropping like flies from the raids and exhaustion. Lull and a female marine meet Duwaker and tell him Coltane wants him, that they've met another tribe who seem content to merely watch rather than attack. Lull asks what Duwaker knows of the tribes in this area, and Duwaker responds that they have no love of Arryn, and that the Empire has treated them well, paying for passage, not asking for inordinate tribute. He can tell from Lul's expression that Coltane has come to some sort of decision, and he worries what it is. The three realize what they continue to fight for is the children's dignity. As they come to the flat hill, they can see two old raised roads. The Crow clan mans the raised road like a fortified wall. Coltane tells Duker, I'm sending you a nil and nether and a troop to meet the new tribe, trying by passage to Arryn. Lul tells Coltane that the wounded, along with Corporal List, have refused to go with them. Coltane tells Duwaker to deliver the refugees to Arryn, and when Duwaker mentions the possibility of betrayal, Coltane says, they'll all die together in that case. Duwaker offers the alchemical bottle delivered by the Trigal Trade Guild, but Coltane refuses it, telling Duwaker he is a historian, the teller of the tale is more important, and that he should tell Jujek if he sees him, that it is not the Empire's soldiers the Empress cannot afford to lose, it is its memory. Lul tells Duwaker that List sent his goodbyes and wanted to let Duwaker know that he has found his war. Coltane prepares to attack. Duwaker leads the refugees out, then takes Nether with him to meet two elders of the new tribe. He tells them Coltane is offering a collection from all soldiers of the Seventh, 41,000 silver jacatas. The tribal elder identifies that number as the annual wages of a full Malazan army and scorns Duwaker for stealing the soldiers' wages to buy passage. Duwaker tells her that on the contrary, the soldiers insisted. It was a true collection. Nether adds more from the Wiccans, all that they looted on the long journey. All that they have, and it is implied all they will have no use for when they die. The elders declare they can't accept the offer, saying it's too much, more than the treaties specify, and agree to take the remainder as payment for escorting the refugees to the Arran Road, as well as feeding and healing them. As dusk falls over the refugees, Duwaker listens to their slow realization that they are being cared for their tortured response to the kindness of the Kiron tribe, even the possibility they may in fact make it to Arryn, and that it comes at the cost of those sacrificing themselves in battle against Dom. Nether tells Duwaker she can no longer communicate with Coltane, the link is broken. When he asks if it means Coltane is dead, she says that they would sense his death cry. She says she fears they will not make the three leagues to Arryn from the Arryn road. Nethpara arrives and tells Duwaker some of the well-off have purchased fresh horses and wish to depart immediately for Arryn. They also mention that Tumlet fell ill and died. Duwaker refuses the freedom to leave, worried it will cause panic. Nethpara starts to challenge Duwaker to a duel, but Duwaker knocks him unconscious with the flat of his sword. After a day and night's march, they arrive at the start of the Arryn Way, a raised road with ditches to either side. 
and cedars lining the tops of the bank on its 10-mile path to Arin, created at the order of Dasim Ultor, early in the conquest. The Kiran Elder tells Duiker a large force is swiftly approaching and asks if he is sure Arin will open its gates to the refugees if they make it. Duiker laughs and says he'll worry about that when they get there. They march past huge mass graves from when the Talana mass slaughtered the residents of Arin long ago. They can see the pursuing army behind, opting for the shorter cross-country path, rather than the road itself. Duiker guesses the barrows, which will slow their pursuers, are too new to be on the maps, and that this may just give the refugees the extra time they need. Nil, who has been sent ahead, sends to Nether that they can see the city and its gates are shut. Dom's army seems to be mobilizing slower than it should be. The first refugees are within a thousand paces of the city and its gates still remain shut. Duiker orders Nether to ride ahead with the Wiccans. Duiker passes refugees, simply stopping and giving up. He scoops up an 18-month-old and continues on. Arryn finally opens the gates and the refugees flood in, helped by the Arryn city garrison. Pornqual's army, however, simply watches from the walls. Duiker hands the child to a garrison soldier, Captain Kenneb, who tells Duiker he's to report to the High Fist immediately. He also tells him the soldiers on the wall have been ordered by Pomquil to do nothing, and they aren't happy about it. Duiker looks back and sees the refugees who have given up, unable to move and too far for him to retrieve, a conclusion compounded by the fact that the Fist will not let his soldiers aid in the process. He looks north to see a dust cloud over the nearest barrow and the high pillar of the whirlwind. He enters the city. Apt and the boy Panek are in shadow. Cotillion joins them and tells Apt her reshaping of the boy will scar him inside. She replies and tells her the boy now belongs to neither. When she speaks again, he smiles and calls her presumptuous, then introduces himself to Panic as Uncle Cotillion. Panic says he can't be related because his eyes are different, and relates his observation that Cotillion walked through walls and trees of the ghost world as if ignorant of its right to dwell here. Cotillion asks Ap if Panic is insane, and is shocked at her answer. He then asks what Panek recalls of his other world, and Panek says he remembers being told to stay close to father, then being led away by soldiers, who then punished him and all the children for not doing what we were told, and then by nailing them to crosses. Cotillion becomes icy and tells Panek he wasn't hurt for not doing what he was told, but because nobody could stop those people, that Panek's father would have, but was helpless, and that Apt and Cotillion will make sure Panek is never helpless again. Then he says he and Panek will teach each other, Penek can teach Cotillion, who is curious as to the reason why the hounds never run in a straight line. What he sees in the ghost world, the shadow hold that was, the old places that remain. Penek says he'd like that, as well as meeting the cuddly mutts. Cotillion tells Ap that she was right. She can't do it alone, and that he and Shadowthrone will think about it. He says Apt has to leave, and that she has debts to pay, and asks if Penek would rather go with her or join Cotillion in settling the other children. Panek answers he'll go with the demon to help the man from before, Kalam, who dreams at the sight of Panek on the cross. Cotillion says that doesn't surprise him, that Kalam, like Cotillion, is haunted by helplessness. He turns to Apt and says when he ascended, he did so to escape the nightmares of feeling. Imagine my surprise that I now thank you for such chains. Panek asks Cotillion if he has any children, and Cotillion says he had a daughter of sorts, though they've had a falling out. Panek says Cotillion has to forgive her, and Cotillion replies the forgiveness must come from her. The boy says he must meet her. The rope walks away, engulfed by shadows, though Panek can still see him. The captain wakes and finds the sailors watching two demons fighting on deck. 
He orders the first mate to get the dories ready to abandon ship, and the first mate calls him Carther, which the captain answers with, Shut your face, I drowned years ago, remember? On the traitor that had been keeping pace with Ragstopper, the captain and first mate comment that the Ragstopper is about to go down. Manala appears on deck atop Kalam's stallion and jumps the horse into the harbor. The captain, impressed by both her bravery and stupidity, orders the ship's mage to clear her a path through the sharks and anything else ahead of her. Shaikh looks down on the city from a watchtower alongside the young girl she adopted. Heboric joins her and tells her that Laoric is the one to watch, that he seems to sense that Felicin has made a bargain with the goddess rather than acceding to let the goddess be fully reborn. Heboric says instead the goddess has been remade. He asks Felicin when the goddess first turned his eyes to her, when she began the manipulation that would lead to this point, and Felicin says she never did, that all the twists and turns of mortality makes things too complex for the goddess to manipulate. She says Shaik the Elder did have prophecies and visions, but they made little sense to the Drizna and were too uncertain, nor is the goddess much for strategy. Haboric answers then that if not for Drizna, someone or something must have guided Felicin, as Shaikh never would have had those visions, and he wonders if gods are pieces on a board as mortals are. Felicin replies with a quote from Kalanved, Elemental forces in opposition, words meant, she says, to justify the balance of destruction with creation, the expansion of the empire. When Haboric inquires what the whirlwind leader plans to do regarding Dom's committing of atrocities in her Felicin's name, she corrects him by saying, in the name of the goddess, and says Dom remains unfettered of compassion or emotion, and so free to answer his obsessions. Heboric says it'll take months to march to meet him, and by then Dom will have done so much that Tavor will be more than justified in whatever harsh retribution she brings down on seven cities. Felicin says she'll have the advantage over Tavor, because her sister will expect to face a mere ignorant desert witch, not someone who knows much of Tavor's mind. As the whirlwind lowers itself horizontal, she says the journey won't take months. The whirlwind is the goddess's warren, and it will take them south. Duiker and Nether go to the tower while Malagrel and Pormqual stand looking down, along with Nil and an unknown commander, barely in control of himself. The soldiers on the walls are screaming in outrage as they see Coltane with fewer than 400 soldiers left, still finding his way toward Arryn, being slaughtered by Dom's thousands. Close enough that Duiker can see individuals clearly. Duiker reaches for Pormqual, but is held back by the garrison commander, Pormqual saying there are too many. Duiker says a sortie would save them, to which the garrison commander replies, Duiker is right, but the fist won't allow it. Duiker can't bring himself to bear witness to this event, but forces himself to, in order to fill the role of historian which Coltane so strongly reinforced for him. He watches Bolt die, then Corporal List. He watches as a massive cattle dog, pinioned with arrows, tries to defend Coltane, and gets speared. Then he sees Coltane being nailed to a cross as thousands of crows darken the sky, coming to fetch Coltane's soul. Chemistry Lowe uses sorcery to kill the crows and refuse them access to Coltane's soul. The garrison commander calls for a skilled archer named Squint and orders him to kill the man on the cross. As he aims, Squint realizes it's Coltane, and with the realization comes weeping. He finally delivers the killing arrow after an emotional and pleading nether begs it of him. The death is mercifully instantaneous for the Wiccan. The crows swoop down on Coltane, Rillo's sorcery shunted aside. And when the crows clear away, Coltane is gone. Duiker embraces the distraught archer, broken by what he has done. Pormqual grows more fearful as he gazes at Dom's army. Duiker observes as the fist shrinks into Malakrel's shadow. Kalam pulls himself out of the water into Mala's city. 
He takes the attack to the hands waiting for him and kills a bunch of them. Fiddler's group moves through the Azath. Fiddler realizes the floor, which stretches out for leagues in all directions, is a map way to all the worlds, to every house. Pust disappears. They find a hole where he went, and as they pass on, thinking Pust had fallen to his death, the floor reforms. Mappo walks on, feeling guilt over his cowardice, his selfishness, his breaking of his vows by not giving Akarium over to the Azath. Absalar sees Mappo and Akarium disappear into another hole. The rest rope themselves together. They see three dragons fly by, then dive into the tiles and disappear. They realize you go through when you get to where you're going. Even as Fiddler thinks, you don't exactly plan on it. They realize the others aren't dead, the appearance of the dragons, their indifference, and the scale of the Azath leads Fiddler to muse on how small they were, and how the world goes on without them. Arryn prepares for Dom's siege. Tension is in the air as the soldiers are angry at Pormqual for not letting them out to try and save Coltane. Tavor's fleet is less than a week away. Blistig tells Duiker Malagrel has convinced Pormqual to ride out and attack Dom, and also that Nethpara is blaming Coltane for the deaths of so many refugees. Blistic says his guard has been ordered to be rearguard, and the Red Blades have been arrested. It makes more sense to wait for Tavor and let Dom batter himself against Arryn. Pormqual commands Duiker to join them, to see how battle is done, and that he and Nil and Nether will be arrested for treason. Nethpara starts to mock Duiker, and Duiker kills him. Kenneb arrives, and when he hears Duiker refer to Malagrel as Gistal, he recalls what Kalam had said to him, and steps back to find Blistig. He runs. Dom's army appears to flee before Pormqual's. Then, Arryn's army rides into an ambush. They are encircled by vast numbers. Rel says it's Duiker's treachery, and that he smells sorcery on Duiker, whom he accuses of being in communication with Dom. Dom approaches under parlay flag, and Rel goes to meet them. Duiker tries to convince Pormqual to punch through and to withdraw to the city, to no avail. Rel returns and says Dom says the army must lay down arms and group in the basin. Then they'll be treated as prisoners of war, while Rel and Pormqual will be hostages. Duiker, seeing what is coming, let his horse go as, It's the least I can do for her. Rel convinces Pormqual to accede, and Pormqual orders his commanders to do so. The captains salute and go to give the order. The army disarms and groups. Dom and Rello arrive. Rello says he has delivered the city to Dom. Duiker laughs and says not true. Blistig and his command stayed behind and probably freed the Redblades as well. They are few but enough to hold the walls until Tavor shows up. Dom says Duiker will die with the other soldiers, that he will make Tavor too furious to think. Dom wants to kill Squint, but he's disappeared. He has Pormqual killed, rather than give him the honor of dying with his soldiers. Dom spends a day and a half crucifying all the soldiers, 10,000, on the cedars along Arryn Way. Duiker is last. As he dies, a ghostly, tusked face rose before his mind's eye. The gravest compassion filled that creature's inhuman eyes. The face disappears as awareness ceases. Kalam continues fighting claws. As his run seems to be running out, he is saved by Manala. They head for Mox Hold. As the pair ride the stallion up the stairs of Mox Hold, they enter a warren which take them inside. Manala stays back and Kalam enters a room to have an audience with Lassine. She asks why he's come to kill her. He lists her crimes, citing the systematic killing of the Bridgeburners, outlawing Dujek, trying to kill Whiskey Jack, and the Ninth, old disappearances, the old guard, possibly killing Dasem Ultor, killing Dancer and Kalanved, incompetence, and betrayal. Lassine requests and is granted a defense. She says Tayskrin's efforts in Genabacus were misguided, 
and that she didn't plan or want to kill the bridge burners. Lauren was sent to kill Sari, and that Dujek's outlawing was a ruse. She admits to killing Dancer in Clanved and usurping the throne in betrayal, saying the Empire, which is greater than any individual, required it. She followed what she saw as a necessity, though admits to some grievous errors in judgment. As for Dawson, she answers he was ambitious and sworn to Hood, and she struck first to avoid civil war. When Kalam asks about Seven Cities, she answers angrily that it will be repaid in kind. The sincerity with which she voices this point convinces Kalam. He refers to her as Empress and turns away, aware for some time that she isn't physically present. She warns him she can't call off the claw and asks where he'll go when he escapes them. Kalam and Manala head out. Topper and Lassine converse. They say Kalam is no longer a threat and knows he'd realized she wasn't really there. She tells Topper she doesn't want to lose Kalam, but he says he can't call off the claw. He adds that she is crazy, however, if she thinks they'll succeed in killing Kalam. He tells her to consider it an overdue winnowing, a necessary culling of the weak and complacent. Topper tells her he is angry with Pearl's inefficiency, and Lassine approves of disciplining the claw, but cautioning him from doing too much. Fiddler and the others fall through the floor of Tomorlor and find themselves in the dead house in Mala's city. Inside, they meet a guardian, Gothos who reveals Ikarium is his son. He also bemoans that Ikarium wasn't taken, and reveals that Mappo had been lied to about Ikarium destroying his village. The Nameless Ones had done it to acquire a companion, since Ikarium's previous had killed himself. When Fiddler asked why Ikarium is so cursed, Gothos says he wounded a warren in the course of attempting to free Gothos from the Azath and was damaged. Fiddler thanks the gods for mortality, thinking he couldn't live with such long-lived torment as a sentence. Gothos directs them to a bucket of healing water on their way out, the likes of which causes Fiddler great pain in its reparations. Absalar senses claw sorcery on the air. Fiddler says that they should aim for Smiley's Tavern. Panek and Apt rise up as they exit the grounds and the boy tells them that Kalam is going to Mach's Hold to see the Empress. They offer to escort the group through Shadow. Four hands appear. Apt and Fiddler's group arrive to help. They all end up in shadows. Kalam tells Fiddler he changed his mind about killing Lassine. Shadow Throne arrives and tells them they're in the Shadow Realm, and that Apt has delivered them to him. Apt yells at him, and he declares he'll reward them all. Apsalar, her father, and Crocus ask to be sent to the Kanis coast, and they disappear. Kalam says he and Manala could do with the rest, and Shadow Throne says he knows just the place, and that Apt will be with them. Fiddler wishes to re-enlist and join Tavor, something that touches the Ascendant. Shadow Throne sends him behind Smiley's to this end. Shadow Throne takes Kalam and Manala to where the 1,300 children saved from crucifixion are. Felicin, Haborik, and the Ruraku army of the Apocalypse exit the Whirlwind Warren at Balan. The village is still littered with corpses from the battle that took place there between the forces of Coltane and Kerbolo Dom. Leoman takes a patrol of scouts ahead, while the High Mages Bidithal, Febril, and Laoric quest ahead with their own powers. Felicin senses their horrors at what they find. Shaikh Reborn speaks of regrets with Haborik. To herself, she regrets the falling out with her sister Tavor. To Haborik, she mentions she has adopted the orphan girl Felicin Younger. They are soon approached by the commanders of her southern army, the triumphant Kamestri Lo and the coolly disdainful Corbolo Dom, as well as the shaken war leaders of the various desert tribes, at the head of the Aran Way, decorated with crucified corpses for more than three leagues. Dom brags about his victory. He admits Arryn is still held by the Malazans, but argues that the soon-to-arrive adjunct Tavor is naive and untested. She will find no one to advise or assist her here. Felicin calls for Dom's army to join her own and make ready to return to Ruraku, 
Shaikh will decide the time and place to meet her sister. The blind Taboric is drawn to one of the corpses lining the cedar trees of Arinway. Who is this man, he asks. It is, of course, his friend, Duaker, but Malik Rel tells him it is no one. Haboric asks if anyone hears a god's laughter. No one does. Haboric prays to Fenner, saying his wayward son wishes to come home. Arin Guard Commander Blistig watches Adjunct Tavor approach the city palace with her aide to Amber and Captain Gamut. Captain Keneb informs him that Gessler and the crew of the Salanda have disappeared after offloading the wounded of the Malaz 7th Army. The survivors of the Chain of Dogs, including Nil and Nether, have assembled for the commander's inspection. Blistig ponders how these troops, as well as his own guard, have been broken by their experience. Meanwhile, Squint is missing. Blistig makes his way to the adjunct. Mappo rests while Akarium sleeps near the corpses lining the road. The Azath Warren left them on the Dojelo Don, and they've trekked to the Arran Way. Mappo observes three men in an ox-drawn cart slowly moving up the road, inspecting each of the bodies. It is Gessler, Stormy, and Truth. They are looking for Duaker. They are alarmed by the trail's sudden appearance, but Mappo offers his services as a healer. Truth has recovered the dog's roach and bent from the sights of Coltane's fall, but Mappo thinks neither will survive their wounds. Stormy checks the last of the crucified bodies. When Truth asks if it's Duaker, Gessler and Stormy lie, saying that it is not the historian. Mappo suddenly remembers the healing elixirs he carries in his pack. Later, two Bakarala-like creatures named Erp and Rudd lead an enormous ornate wagon up the road. Servants of Baruch, they are here to claim the body of Coltane, whom their master had gifted with a small magical bottle of smoky glass. Rudd finds the unrecognizable corpse with the bottle under its shirt. Peering inside, he sees that it has served its function and captured the soul of its wearer. He also finds a tattered note with only the name Saelis Lorthal written upon it. Mortals are strange, he thinks. The creatures pull the body onto their cart. Escarl Pus arrives home at Tessim after his own journey through the Azath Warren. He begins shrieking as hundreds of spiders pour from his clothes. The spiders assemble into the Diver's human Majora. She berates the Shadow Priest, saying she has been following him for months and is aware of all his schemes regarding the Pathophans. The two argue as the undead soul-taken dragon that Culp once called the Unwelcome flies off from its perch near the tower. Pust is pleased that the dragon was not fooled by his trickery and had protected the True Gate while he was away. Pust and Majora head inside where Pust suggests the witch can take up relics, former duties. Majora explodes with rage. Ikarium awakes. He has no memory of any events since their sighting of Apt in the Panspotan Oten. Mappo tells him it has been only a day since they lost the demon's trail. They decide to head west into the Jagodan. Ikarium feels optimistic about their prospects. I feel close this time, very close, he informs the trail. What would I do without you, my friend? Perish the thought, replies his companion. A pregnant young widow steps out of a horsewife's yurt and stops after thirty paces. The horsewife has told her that the child she carries is an empty vessel and without a soul. She has been given a medicine that will return the cursed child back to the earth. As she places the flask to her lips, the horsewife stays her wrist and peers at the dark clouds gathering overhead. Recognizing both fear and hope in the horsewife's face, the widow demands to know what is happening. She spots a storm and as it gets closer, she thinks it to be a horde of flies. As it draws nearer still, she realizes it is a seething mass of crows. Suddenly, the dark cloud descends upon her, and she is enveloped. 
As the horsewife gives wordless voice to the anguish of a thousand grieving souls, the widow comes to a sudden realization. Deep within her, a child stirs. All right, so let's try to get our thoughts in order here. Uh, so many, so many, so many things just happened. Um, let's start first with the Vathar crossing battle. That was one of my favorite yeah, parts. Uh, it was really brutal to read. It was really difficult to read. Uh, I think visually for me, this was one of the most striking things in both of these books that we've read or both of these volumes of Malazan that we've read so far. Swarms of yellow butterflies uh, mixing with the blood of thousands and thousands of refugees as arrows come down. And uh, man, it's just a lot uh, of insects. In this yeah, book. it was a lot of bugs. A lot of bugs. A lot of bugs. Book. Yeah. Which Though, I mean, granted, cool these were I the like, prettiest. Kind of. I mean, until they were like piled up in dead, like swarms on the yeah, top yeah, of the river. Floating in piles. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that um, the Vathar Crossing, uh, this feels like the battle that I kind of, I feel like I understood this one the most. I feel like I was the most uh, kind of like riveted and kind of like sucked into this one because just the, the tactics that were involved. I mean, you know me, I'm not a huge fan of um, like battle scenes and stuff. They can kind of go over my head a little bit. And I just get a little lost sometimes. But with this one specifically, like, I just felt like, wow, like I 100% understand what's going on and why this is so intense like why this is so bad and you know everybody that just listened to the recap and everything uh you know we kind of explain the best we can what was going on but i mean if i can really really just kind of wrap it up for you and really explain yeah. really quickly what was going on i was gonna ask because like typically i do war you do war now like when i'm like all proud like please no. tell me of the tactics <laughs> i've <seven>. graduated <laughs> in chad's eyes um, yeah, I mean, it, basically what happened is an emissary was sent from Corbolodom's forces, told the nobles, or they offered Coltane first and said, hey, well, you guys can totally pass. It's no big deal. Like, well, you guys have been through it. Wow, wow. Uh, such such a huge amount of respect for all of you. Just get, get over there, you know? Coltane is basically like, no, go away. We don't care about any of that. And um, they sent a different emissary to the nobles who they convinced the nobles like, hey, go ahead and go. You know, it's fine. We, we totally won't attack you guys at all. Like not going to attack you guys. And then obviously they get attacked. They block up the river. Cross. And then when the refugees, there's like 40,000 people trying to cross this river. Like you really got to like think about how many people are trying to get across this river when a barge shows up because this whole time the mages, you know, the warrens are opened back up. The mages have like blocked off any way of Sormo or the other Wiccan uh, mages like figuring out what they're doing and this whole time they've been building this like barge basically putting a bunch of archers on it putting a bunch of archers in the forest on the other side of the river it's this perfectly executed situation it's horrible i mean it's it's a total massacre what i really liked about this one and I'm, I'm, again i'm using the word liked generously but like what i liked about this one hey, is you liked that it a lot that's fine obviously we're seeing all these battles through duiker's eyes he is the uh, empirical uh, historian but he was like really dragged into this one, you know, like, I mean, and I think that the, the one of the cool things about Doiker and the way that all of this has kind of been evolving uh, when, you know, he chose to go along with the chain of dogs, you know, I mean, like he he's kind of becoming more of a soldier and less of a historian in my in my opinion, at least, especially that there's like that conversation later between him and Coltane where, um, you know, Coltane, like, I can't remember exactly what happened, but Coltane said something like, uh, historian and director's like, dude, just call, like, I don't even feel like I have a rank anymore. I'm just like an old guy that's hanging out with you. And then Coltane is like, well, you're a soldier, you know, and director's been 
fighting more and there's like just blood all over his hands and stuff and he like obviously um he's just getting like more and more involved and i think in this battle specifically it was just really cool to read him barely escaping with his life ah it was it was awesome totally and there's kind of an evolution in duiker as yes he becomes a soldier but coltane like never forgets that he's the historian and consistently goes out of his way to make sure that Duiker is poised. Like he doesn't even tell him his plan sometimes. Like in the last book when he had some like surprises up his sleeve, he made sure that Duiker was in position to see the surprise attacks. And I wonder if do you think Coltane, maybe without jumping all the way to the end here and just talking about some of the travesty yeah, here, do you sure. think Coltane knew that he wasn't going to make it and he really wanted Duiker to make it so Duiker could tell the tale of the chain of dogs and all of the hell that they went through i think that in coltane's mind the chances like there's even a, a part later where um <laughs> uh some corbo somebody confronts it was one of the other villi- uh sorry i'm like all over the place it was one of the other tribes uh after they had gone through the vathar crossing and stuff that the uh, emissaries from that tribe had like come up and said like hey this uh this isn't really looking that good. And, and Coltane is like, yeah, I probably wouldn't bet on this, you know, like, <laughs> like I, I can kind of see where this is going, you know? Um, but it's really cool because they end up uh, helping them. But anyway, Coltane knows this is, this is just awful. Like, I mean, he's definitely probably not going to survive this. And so with Duiker, it's, it's very important that people understand not only just in a, in a like respectful sort of way, the plight that all these people have been going through, but also there's a certain narrative here. The, like Pormqual is not sending anybody to help. He held back right. Admiral Knox's navy. Uh, he is not sending any warriors from Aaron at all, who could, would be a gigantic help to escort all these refugees. I don't know if Pormqual had explicit orders from Lacine to do that. I can't remember if that's a thing, but he should have done it. Like Pormqual knows that the Chain of Dogs is on its way. It's being harassed by all these um, whirlwind forces and everything. So I feel like Coltane is kind of like, you need to see all this, Duiker, so that when I die, <laughs> like when I'm eventually killed along with everybody else, people can at least know that we did everything we could and we were basically betrayed by... Uh, high fist that shouldn't have ever been high fist you know and i think that that's also I mean, why sorry i'm just rambling here but like no no and, go go get it but I th- and i think that that's also why Pormqual doesn't send his troops out you know he has like ten thousand or so like men manning the walls of rn and then even when coltane shows up with like just the stragglers of the seventh and, doorstep yeah and, and that's why Pormqual doesn't save him because he knows that coltane will eventually spill the beans and be like yeah, we got here alive, but this fucking guy like didn't help us at all. Yep. He went against obvious some some orders, probably. Um, so I mean, yeah. I think it's just kind of like a grant. Last scene's probably like, I would assume that you would help your fellow army like escape this entire continent that's been taken over. And I think you hit the nail on the head with Pornqual. I know that he was like being manipulated. Like he's not really in control of his. Uh, true, he's being manipulated a bunch, but really, ultimately, he's a coward, and he goes and hides. Um, at Aaron and Coltane, since showing up and getting that ridiculous um, order to go get reviewed like halfway across the continent or whatever, he knows from like day one he has he's alone. He's got no support. And then I think that he because he started like getting um, cattle and stuff like he knew that they were going to be on a desperate struggle real quick. Uh, and then 
didn't expect any help from Pornqual. So I think you nailed it when he was like, okay, Duiker, you need to watch all of this because I need somebody who is trusted by Lassine to give the report here because Pornqual is going to do everything within his power to kill me, basically. So I cannot deliver the message. So with all of that being talked about here, um, we need to also talk about how Duiker ends up getting crucified himself. Oh. Which was a really, really difficult. I mean, like obviously, Coltane. Like crucified. I know. Well, I mean, like, yeah, it's like a, <laughs> it's a lot. When you say everybody, you actually uh, kind of yeah. Everybody. Yeah. But do it occur like so? Like if I if you can help me get this like chain of events correct, maybe uh, I, I think I'm right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Discord, correct me if I'm wrong. Um. So the. <laughs> Oh my god! I just cracked myself up because I I have to like I, when I'm about to talk, start talking about this stuff, I'm like, okay, but before I start talking about that, I got to start talking about this. So, dude, give me give me a blamed. second. I'm trying here. Uh, okay, so uh, there is a there is an extremely uh, desperate situation going on here, and then some kind of weird warrant opens up. These people from Darujistan, or at least they claim they're from Darujistan, these mages come up in these carriages and they give everybody water, and they're like, ah. We this is just like a thing we do. I don't know what the hell that was. Uh, our our dear readers, our dear listeners, uh, no idea what any of that was. They also showed up uh, to help <laughs> Fiddler and everybody. And okay, so uh, those mages they gave Coltane like this weird little like bottle, you know, oh, and said it was right, and right. said it was. I think it was from Quick Ben. Um, and yep, then they uh-huh. said like uh, Dujek one arm sends his regards. That was funny too when they were like, "Do you want to say anything? Do you have like a message for Dujek?" And Coltane's just like, "Nope, see ya." Like, yeah, yeah. He's so badass. <laughs> it was so the Trigal cool. Trade Guild appeared. Oh, that's what it was. Okay, yeah. Cool. So anyway, uh, so they give Coltane this little bottle, and they're like, "Use this right before you die." Um, and then Coltane and Dujek are getting this weird little tiff. It's this weird tiny little argument. Um, where Duiker kind of like calls Coltane out for something, and then Coltane like holds the lance to his neck, and he's like, he like rips the bottle off of his neck, off the necklace, and he hands it to Duiker, and he's like, here, you take this, you know. And so when Duiker is getting crucified right before he dies, he like smashes that little thing, where like, I don't even know if it's like right there, but that thing gets smashed, and then like Duiker, all that to be, all that being said, it seems like Duiker's not gonna be totally dead. Right, right, because those two Barkala show up out of nowhere, and they're like, they're like, we found Coltane's corpse because it's so mangled that they couldn't recognize who it was, right? And they put it on like a cart, and I don't know if that was actually Coltane because they get the bottle too, and inside the bottle there's like a name. Well, it's Duiker's like, soul. Are so it's, weird. It's Duiker's. It's not Coltane's soul. I know, but they think it's Coltane, but the body is so mangled they can't uh they can't recognize who it is so they think that it's uh do they think it's coltane because they thought that coltane had the bottle but it mentions that the body is so mangled that they didn't know who it was or they thought it was coltane yeah cuz coltane uh, it's funny i've got effie back here listening to only one side of this conversation cuz i have <laughs> headphones on so she probably thinks that i'm slowly going crazy over here but coltane it's not much clearer while he's to, being both of us. <laughs> <laughs> while he's being crucified uh he gets shot in the forehead because they want to make sure that he like the the mass of crows in the sky has time to go suck up his soul into the mass of crows uh but he can only that can only happen if they don't drag out his death and so that's why right. squint shoots him in the head uh and then all these crows come in and suck him up <laughs> but anyway um so Duiker and Coltane, it seems like are both going to come back and it's really good because all of that being said the reason i'm bringing all of that up for everybody that 
might still be hanging on by their fingernails to this conversation. Uh, the reason I'm bringing all that up is because I forgot that I, I remember that Duiker was going to die, but I forgot that there was like a little hint that he's going to come back. And while I was reading totally. all of this, I was like, this sucks because Coltane gets betrayed in this horrible way. That's the way that if anybody was curious, that's the reason I threw this book across the room the first time I read it was because I wasn't expecting that at all. I was worried it would be all for nothing. You know what I mean? I was worried that Duiker was going to die and no one was going to know the, the the depths of this b- betrayal by their own uh, Malazan brethren, you know? So, um, yeah, I'm glad that that's not the case, or at least it seems like it's not the case. Totally. Do you think that maybe we witnessed Coltane's ascension? Because at one point, uh, Coltane hits uh, Stormy or Gessler. I can't remember which one it was. It wasn't true if it was Gessler or Stormy. Yeah. yeah, and he like breaks his hand, and every someone there mentions that there's like ascendant like energy coming off of them and like giving ascendancy (laughs) yeah 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 and so they're like and but i mean i'm pretty sure that's because of the traveling on the salanda they like met up with um when they were trying to get the salanda out of one of the warrens they were helped by a bunch of ascendants and i think that was the magic that overtook them all that like that was a question juice i have a question (laughs) i have a question about the ascendance juice okay Uh, because so maybe maybe I just really read over this, but I mean, um, Gessler and Stormy and Truth, uh, part of Kellenved's um, old guard, old cabal kind of thing. Um, so that there's that. There's that. <clears throat> they were kind of posing, I think, as coastal guards. Mm-hmm. Um, but or at least they took the demotion or something, whatever. They were on the same ship as Bowden and Haborik and Phyllis and, and Culp. Why didn't Bowden and Felicin and Havoric and Kolf get turned into near ascendants? Were they just on the ship long? Like, was the trio? I th- yeah, of them? I think that is the answer, though. I think that is the answer because they all jumped ship pretty quick, and I think the 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 three of them stayed on that ship longer. And it was like, uh, it was a warren because Quick Ben's like this ship is like it's like a warren in and of itself. Maybe I don't know. It reeks of warren, is what he no, says. That's at what, one point. No, that's what. you're wrong about that. That's what Quick Ben says to Kalam when he's on the Ragstopper. Oh, sorry, the Ragstopper. Yeah, you're sorry. right. You're totally right. Darn it. Well, anyway, I do think that they're like jumping from warren to warren. I think there's something about the Salandra, I guess, and I being in know. all these warrens that yeah. gives them the warren juice. Well, uh, the or the excuse the me, the juice. ascendant juice. Yeah. Um, because it's there's like this little weird part. I might be misremembering mis- this, but there's like this weird part where like when Kolb is doing his whole like, ah, oh, please help me. Ah, oh, there's a dragon, like oh, that whole weird right. sequence yeah, yeah, in the yeah. beginning of Chain of Dogs. There's like a weird part where Gessler like smiles at him. Remember that? It's like a, it's like one line. Oh yeah. There's like this weird exchange that they have, like this nonverbal exchange. And I feel like there's something You're right there, but I could be, that, that could be like a total misinterpretation of what's going on. I just feel like all the stuff in the, um, I think they're in a Talan Warren um, within on the Salanda with the dragon Talanamas bone caster and everything like all that <laughs> stuff. And like the Talanamas that like takes one of the Tisti Udur like heads and goes into that weird rent in the Warren and everything like all of that. I'm pretty sure is extremely important, but I, I hope it's just cleared up a little bit more later because it's 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 wacky. It's wackadoodle time. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying it, over here. It's, like, it's I just wackadoodle. Don't. It's uh, wackadoodle time. <laughs> uh, let's move on a little bit to Kalam and Lassine. I think it was a really cool conversation we got to see. Most of the stuff that happened on the Ragstopper, eh, it was like fine. I didn't, I didn't love it. I mean, like the part where they like ram that ship and, you know, they finally throw that 
crappy treasurer over and stuff. Like most of that was like pretty interesting. Um, finding out that Salk Elon is Pearl, uh, also interesting. That's fine. Uh, the stuff on the Ragstopper I felt like was a little bit, it was just kind of, I didn't really know what was going on, you know, and it was just like very vague and Kalam's just like, mm, I think something's weird, you know? Right. It's like, yeah, I do too, man. Can we, what is going on? Like, right. Anyway. Like something is definitely weird. Kalam. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and then he like has that, like the conversation that you, that you brought up earlier with when he talks to quick, totally ben. quick ben and quick ben's just like ah i don't know it seems sketchy man and he's just like wait i need help and then quick ben's and like, they get oh, like cut oh. off yeah, like bad service call drops yeah and he's like the wall something about the path of hands and quick ben's like ah double ripping out his hair because he's like this is really bad news this is really bad news kalam <laughs> it's like and they like lose uh service with that. each other i love the way that kalam and quick ben talk to each other because kalam is just like He's like, oh, I'm kind of like worried. And Quick Ben's just like, you absolutely should be. This is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and then he just ends the call. But anyway, um, so most of that was like fairly interesting, but it just wasn't my favorite. Like it was kind of one of those moments where like every time I went back to the rack stopper, I was like, ugh, whatever. Like, I don't know what the hell's going on right now. Um, yep. But if I did, it was just kind of boring. And I felt like it just kind of like dragged out a little bit. But um, we did have an interesting part right before Callum and Lassine have a conversation. And that's when Sok Elan stabs Callum right after a really long monologue which i thought was like espousing all of his dastardly deeds and how he's like haha i tricked you and kalam's like totally flat-footed like dude you just got done hearing about the evil plan that you were tricked in and then I, it was just crazy to me that he wasn't ready for the attack please let us know in the discord if we miss something because i thought i i read that part twice i just didn't understand why like kalam is like one of the best assassins in the world had Kalam already he... talked to Lassine by that point? He had, huh? No, he hadn't. No, no he hadn't. Darn. Yeah. I was going to say, well, maybe he knew that Lassine then called off the claw, which she did do, but that didn't happen no, until afterwards. No, and then also no. Topper was like, yeah, I can't tell the claw to not right. come after you now. I thought that was really <laughs> funny that Topper was just like, nod. <laughs> and then he's like, hey, but, you know, the silver lining here is if you look at it through the filter of just like culling the ranks, we're destroying the weak, the strongest survive, you know? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's another point, too, that Duiker was thinking about is the idea that the entire Malazan army is is purely based on merit. There's no, like, your connections don't matter. It's not, which I thought was pretty cool. It was just like a, they, they brought that up a couple times, just like how the Malazan army is a lot different than other armies because of its adaptability, its flexibility. Um, right, they the, think the, the soldiers can right, think for themselves. Like the soldiers so are allowed to, like, speak their mind about different things. And I just thought that was, like, a really nice touch because um, it really does go a long way to explaining why this conquest so like yeah i mean like why they're so good at conquest i mean it really comes down to um, tactics and logistics and the actual people that are doing the conquesting it's not only that they're so free to think and act as the situation needs it but it's specifically mentioned that they have like all this gear like why do they why are they armed so much like the the yeah. soldiers carry so many things and it's because they know that they're going to have the freedom to act and do anything. So they carry as many g gadgets and munitions and whatever the heck that they can arm themselves with so that they are equipped for the time comes. And it just goes to show that not only in the moment are they able to exercise their creativity and like adapt, they knew that going into it, that they would have that freedom. And so they equip themselves with just tons of stuff. So they have it if they need it, you know, which is just a really cool like foresight um, mm -hmm. that them having the freedom to act goes and you're totally right with Lassine. like was Lassine even noble born i don't think so she got all the way up via merit um i mean yeah i think like Lassine and kellenved and dancer started the malazan empire 
Did she, was she part of the starting of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Because I knew sure. she took it over. I don't know if she was there with Kalanvid and Dancer when they started. Yeah, I mean, this kind of like leads into that conversation between um, Lassine and and Kalam, um, because like Kalam shows up and um, you know, so Lassine's like, ah, you came to kill me, huh? Like, well, I've got <laughs> right. some news for you. Like, let me like explain myself a little bit here. Um, and so Lassine basically tells Kalam like. Yeah, uh, Dujak's army is outlawed, um, but the reason that they're outlawed is because we it's its a ruse, only Dujak and I think Tatian know about it. I don't think Whiskey Jack and the the other bridge burners even know about it, but so. most of Dujak's hosts are, are basically being used to kind of go rogue, quote-unquote, but not really, so that they can unite with Anamander Rake and Kaladin Brood. Who are fighting the Panion seer exactly so because that's because uh, apparently and we don't really know anything about that yet but apparently it's really bad like it's whatever it's very much hampering very much you know, to the same degree that the re the revolution in seven cities is hampering the the malazan forces in seven cities on Ganabacus, the Panion seer stuff is very much putting a thorn in lacine's side so that kind of unification of Kaladin Brood and Adam Rick probably wouldn't have happened if the Malazans were presenting more of a unified front. So that's why Lacine did that. I don't even know if like that's totally true. Like I don't Lacine's so weird. Like in a way, I feel like we still like I just at this point in the series, I'm just like not really ready to believe anything yet. But it was obviously enough for Kalam because he was kind of just like, all right, cool. Like that actually explains a lot. So see ya. Totally. You know? Though like Maybe you should let a few more of your higher ups in on the secret here, or else people yeah. are going to be actively trying to kill you. <laughs> like yeah. you're really playing yeah. it close to your chest. And you know, I just kind of remembered as we were talking about this. Um, Pearl has like a mind magic, and that's yeah, how he, he like like stalls the Kalam. The, yeah, the rag, the rag stop. But that's how he's able oh, to stall oh, Kalam. Is he like okay. mind magic? And Kalam's not able to move. Okay, I missed that. Because I, totally yeah. I knew <laughs> he that he was like influencing the, the captain. You're looking for and freezes him. I pictured the captain of the Ragstopper as like a like a Jack Sparrow type. I think that might have been <laughs> totally. Yeah, I think that might have been the point. Um, but yeah, uh, so like yeah, the conversation between Lassine and Kalam. I think that um, it, it really makes me a lot more interested to read Memories of Ice because I think we're jumping back over to Genabacus with um, you know Whiskey Jack and Dujack and company over there um and so it, it's cool to put put it into that into that light it felt kind of weird for like Kalam to like go, do this entire journey and then kind of show up and be like oh well all right then if you're gonna put it right. that way then don't uh, worry about yeah, it yeah yeah like, well, with okay. that being said oh <laughs> but I it makes I'll sense like I, I, yeah i understand why it was just kind of like i forgot about that part and i was just like oh well good thing you like crossed an entire continent and took a huge boat trip to, to have this like weird right, 10 like, minute phone call with some uh, whatever uh it's totally well let's talk about <laughs> the ending of kalam so he finally goes back to he meets gets reunited with fiddler absalar and crocus um who has we uh, successfully to traveled to mala <laughs> city through the dead house what'd you say we gotta no i'm just saying oh yeah all of that stuff <laughs> yeah yeah all of that stuff and so they're in mala city which is like it's cool that we have the dead houses to kind of allow people to move quickly to kind of pull like a, a final season of Game of Thrones, Queen of Dragons, and just start showing up everywhere. Yeah. Um. So that was cool. And then um, I mean, the Warrens do it too. You know. Yeah, I guess but, the Warrens do the, do it too. The, huh? I think the dead house or the Azath house or whatever the hell they went through uh, is like much more. It's much faster. It's like I an think. it's like a yeah. portal. Whereas the Warrens are like for every foot traveled in here, it's ten miles on the outside, sort of thing. Shadow Throne then brings Kalam and Manala into the Realm of Shadow to serve as the surrogate mother and father of like the 1300 children that ap 
uh, earlier, like brought into under the custody of of Shadow Throne, and was like, "You should save these kids." And Shadow Throne was like, "What am I gonna do with these kids?" And he was like, "Raise an army." I don't know. And then Kalam's like, "I could use a little break." And so him and Manala are now like raising children, I guess. Thirteen hundred. Thirteen hundred of them. <laughs> They're just gonna make a bunch of like little assassin children, I guess. Shadow Throne's kids would be no less, right? It's cheaper by the thirteen hundred. Like, I wonder what last scene... Okay, keeping in mind that Shadow Throne is Kalan Ved and Dancer. Okay, so I wonder if they're still working with Lassine. I just wonder the relationship between Lassine and Kalan Ved and Dancer. So there was like this weird part where Absalar, um, I think when she was talking to Akarium, I can't I can't remember exactly where the conversation was, um, but Absalar, who is still being kind of controlled by Cotillion periodically or like has like... I don't know what the hell was going on with her, but... Um, there's like this, there's like this part where Absalar maybe with Cotillion's influence is like, oh, like I kind of understand why Lacine did what she felt like she had to do, you know? Um, so there's like a little bit of, um, give there, you know, I, I think, but so I don't really know if, cause wait, and for everybody listening who has corrected me on this in the discord so many times, um, I think I'm going to get this right this time. Give me a second. Dancer is Cotillion. Um, Kellenved is Shadow Throne. Yes, so I'm pretty wrong sure. about that. Correct me in the Discord. I promise I'll get it right next time. I'm trying my best. I think you got uh, it. I think I got it. But anyway, um, Cotillion is, is, has some influence still over Absalar. There's a conversation where Absalar is basically just like, ah, yeah, like, I mean, Lassine was in a bind, you know, like she had to do what she had to do. Uh, so I think that there's just a little bit more flexibility with like motives and stuff than, than we think there is, was, was specifically regarding Lassine. Because I think that, um, was it Lassine who said, like I wasn't trying to kill all the bridge burners. I was trying to kill the person that was trying to kill me. You know, like that yeah, was yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah, yeah. like you know, which is totally reasonable. You know, <laughs> like actually makes a lot of sense. But anyway, um, yeah. Before we move on from that, do you do you have any idea why they're watching over these kids? Like, is are they trying to train up an army? Is that like a hunch that you have? Because it's a hunch I have, kind of. So like the the kids, uh, I kind of got that uh, to a certain extent, but like the stuff with Apt and this and the kid that's the one-eyed kid that's like riding apps back and stuff i just i don't know like that's just one of the things that i I wish that i could articulate better and like i wish that i could be a cool podcast host and totally nail that for everybody and really explain it but i just honestly have no idea what's going on with apt and shadow (laughs) throne and uh the 1300 crucified kids and this weird like cyclops baby that that a demon is taking around I, I, i don't know I don't know what any of that was. There's like a whole conversation. That's uh, one thing that Erickson does that kind of bugs me a little bit, and I, it's like they're your books, man. Do whatever the hell you want. Like I, you, you have a much more a better idea of what to do here than I do. But like, it's really annoying sometimes when like there's this really key battle or like sequence happening, and then he kind of cuts for like a page and a half to like literally the other side of the continent for like this weird cryptic conversation and then he just goes right back into the thing you were just reading and it's just like ah like wait what what was that (laughs) like why'd you do that man like he did it with he does it with felicin a lot um felicin chapters i should say that are kind of like jammed in there where like and especially in this book where like felicin and haboric are just having some weird cryptic conversation and then we're just kind of like back with uh, the chain of dogs and stuff and it's just like all right well i'm just gonna like forget about all of that but I don't know. It's it's fine, but it's, I feel like it's it's like if you're watching Game of Thrones, and if it's like it would be like if Tyrion's trial was happening, and then it like cut really quick to like the Iron Islands, you know, and it's just like 
<laughs> it'd be super cool if you didn't do that like right in the middle of but it's fine. right but there's probably some kind of like weird meaning to it that i'm not getting you know there's like a reason why he you know cut, cut it's to that. funny because of her because because of her because of his um like doing that his habit of doing that sometimes when i'm reading over like my recaps i'm trying to make them a little bit more coherent i have these like weird sentences they're like super out of place where it's like and meanwhile absalar is over <laughs> here doing this and then it's like back to what where it's like why did you put that there man it's like there's well because it was reason. there i mean there's there, yeah. there's probably something we're not reading into like there's just so much subtlety to these books and i feel like you really got to hang on to like every single word but then it's frustrating because like maybe you don't also yeah. because there's just stuff that you're not really gonna know until six books from now whatever and sometimes people just get killed like bowden you're just like man he, i'm stoked to see what happens with him and his past and, all, and then just like death you know uh, did you notice too. that yeah. and Culp too yeah did you notice that the two bakarala creatures named erp and rudd who show up to fetch the um the bottle he they want coltane's um body and then the little like bottle that supposedly has a soul in even though they end up getting duiker um they're servants of baruch did you catch that i did catch that yeah yeah I don't and speaking of baruch's servants uh moby the the other book oh, yeah. role that the, like that he's like oh you guys need inside the azath house no problem because <laughs> the, the explanation was that the azath house needed another guardian and like the book was like Ikarium will do well, no, Akarium wasn't going to be the other guardian. The Bokaral was Moby. Oh, oh, because he right. wasn't well, actually he was, a Bokaral. He, he was like, yeah, totally, totally. That was really weird. Um, but speaking of uh, the stuff, now, now we're kind of like moving over to the um, the Azeth House stuff, the stuff then Tremolor going to the Dead House. Um, I loved it. I really, really loved it. I liked it even more on my second read through. I feel like I understood a little bit more of what was going on. I still don't understand a lot of what's going on, um, but it seems like so. Like I'm, you know, correct me if I'm wrong again, uh, Chad, and also uh, Discord. So it seems like Tremolor or the Azath House. It seemed like it was being used as like a false path of hands to kind of like like an ant trap to like lure totally. in a bunch of soul taken and divers. Um, totally. Which is really cool. Scarl pussed at the head of the deceased because he knew where the path of hands was the entire time. It was time. under his own temple. Ikarim yeah. and Mas Mappo found it like yeah. 300 pages ago. 500 pages ago. 500 pages ago, yeah, many pages ago. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, so I, what I love about this is that like like Fiddler has his own reason for going to Tremolor. Crocus and Absalar have their own reason for going to Tremolor. Mappo and Akarium have their own reason for going to Tremolor. And it's the, it's this convergence thing. You know what I mean? It's like this thing that we talked about in the last episode where it's like all these things are kind of like working together. Then it's like there's all these like disparate seeming elements on the surface, but really kind of like combined into one thing. Even well, I mean, down Kalam's to... even trying to get there at one point, right? I think that uh, his original plan was to use was the Azath oh, house to get maybe. back to Mala City to help kill Asin, I think. To, but then he uh, ends up not to Mala getting a ride. To, to, yeah, or to Mala City, yeah. yeah to Quantali. Um, but yeah, I thought that oh, was really, really cool. Quantali. <laughs> <laughs> nice, dude. Uh, every time I hear Quantali, I think Talib Kwali. I don't know. <laughs> and most deaf. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so I thought that was really cool that, you know, all these kind of like seemingly separate reasons for being somewhere kind of like coalesced into everybody being there at the same time as all of these soul taken and divers are assaulting this azeth house at the same time as mapo is 
allegedly supposed to be keeping Akarium from destroying the entire thing, which for reasons I'm not totally sure of, if Akarium destroys the Nade's half house is like really, really bad. Uh, so I that was where things... to Warrens, maybe? I don't know, man. I, and I, I think wanna, originally I... Mappa was sent to stop Ikarium from damage. Because I think originally Ikarium damaged a Warren somehow. And then that's one of the reasons why Mappa was tasked with like preventing him from doing that again. I think it was like, but don't let him destroy like lie, nations or Warrens. Well, it was it was a lie. It was a lie that he destroyed Mappo's tribe. That's what they told Mappo to get Mappo oh, to follow him. But Mappo even okay. has a line. And then by then like, he was such good friends with him that he, okay, okay. Totally. Okay. totally. And he's like, it would even have mattered because he's like, I was lied to initially once he finds out the truth. And he was like, but would it really matter? Because Akarim is actually guilty of what they told me that he did, but on to different peoples like at different times not of this specific thing so like maybe they still did right he kind of has this weird like i don't know he's kind of inside his own head being like well was it the right thing for them to lie to me to do that because i am actually doing good by stopping a car and kind of babysitting a carium you know yeah their whole but he doesn't let these take him though which i thought was no he doesn't what did you think about that because he has a chance to kind of like rid himself but we know we're told earlier that Akarium won't actually die he'll be in there forever yeah I mean well okay so a couple of different things um I love Akarium so much um yeah he, he's the he's the he's the only uh genocidal maniac that I totally love uh it's like all by accident he's just yeah, a really good like guy even he kind of has fault. anger like, problems yeah, and fugue uh, state kills entire nations which um is bad <laughs> I'm not bad, saying yeah. it's not bad, but like I just love that like, there's so many parts where Mappo is just like, ah, you're like a kid, you know what I yeah. mean? Like it's it's just like you're so you're actually innocent, like you don't know anything of what, like what's going. Like you have like an idea, but like if you really knew like the the extent to which like it would it would break you, it would destroy yeah. you. Um, but and yeah. it's kind of an interesting conundrum because Mappo was protecting Akarium kind of from himself like yes he's protected the world from Akarium but he knows that if Akarium were to know of like the because at one point when uh, Akarium's like looking at the clock he's like I made this how mm-hmm. did this city around me get destroyed who has the power and Mappo's in his head he's like you did like and you and you're somehow like anger crazy battle rage had the presence of mind not to kill the thing that you created that's why it's still here you know 94,000 years ago uh, like, yeah so this... long ago can you imagine the sort of bond that you would have with your bro? Like me and you traveled the world for 94,000 years. Like, I don't and I had know the whole if... time I was preventing you from killing uh, nations. <laughs> I would appreciate your Akarium here. <laughs> I don't know if, I don't know if Mappo has been with Akarium for 94,000 years. I, I know he's been with him for a really long time. I think there were oh, other, okay. I think there were other trails or other people that were kind of escorting Akarium before Mappa. Oh. I think. I could be wrong, but I You very I well could be that, right. I think that was a thing. Um but but Mappo to my knowledge ends up with Akarium after other people had already been kind of shepherding him around. I, if I'm wrong, correct me. But then Mappo is like, "Ah, I love this guy, you know. Like yeah. we've been we've been palling around for so long. They have such a broish lovely relationship. I love it." Yeah, but it's also really sad. Like oh, it's tragic. I mean, yeah, it really sucks because um yeah, I mean, like, I mean, Akarium is just, like, Mappa's just lying to him constantly. Yeah, and, and he, he feels so bad. He's torn up, and everybody can tell. Two things on that. One is I really love when Fiddler, like, sees, like, you know what? Nobody in our party is going to let the Azath have 
house to take a curry. I'm like, like everybody's got his back. Yeah. I was like, oh, so everybody <laughs> falls for him, you know? Yeah. But then at the end, he's just he's just a tragic character because at the very end when Mappo, like he wakes up and he was like, I'm feeling it, Mappo. This time we're real close to discovering my memories. And he's like sets off with like hope in his stride. Like I'm so close. And Mappo's just like, here we go. And just like follows him yeah. off. And oh, it's just like breaks your heart. Yeah, he's like, I don't know what I would do without you, Mappo. And Mappo's yeah. just like, yeah, I mean, you're not, don't worry about it. Like, yeah, just, like, I got you, so man. so bittersweet. Yeah. Oh. Um, I, you know, I, I liked all that stuff. I mean, I, I feel like the, um, the, the Azeth house stuff, I think I'm starting to get maybe a tiny bit more of a grasp on it. It seems like, it seems like the Azeth houses are kind of in place to contain, like, world destroying amounts of power. Like that's what it, it seems like. and I really wanted to find out more about these things, but they seem like I think the word benign was used or like some kind of, they're kind of there's some kind of like positive force. I think we're gonna read more about it and figure out more about it, but um it, that follows that Akarium destroying one would be really bad. Like it's Yeah, it and Fiddler has a, a conversation with Gothos inside Akarium's the Warrior. dad which yeah Akarium's like, dad okay <laughs> and gothos says now it's all coming back to me and gothos says because fiddler's like why is Akarium like cursed to forever wander and forget everything and gothos is like well he wounded a warren in the course of attempting to free me from the azath house sure. and he damaged either the warren or the azath house i don't remember and then like fiddler just kind of like rolls his eyes and he's like thank you i am short-lived and i am mortal because this would just be too much to handle <laughs> <laughs> oh i love fiddler so much and then goth is like so but here's cool. a bucket of healing water see ya <laughs> like it lets him go I don't know. I don't have much else to say about all that stuff. I thought it was really awesome, but also a little bit confusing sometimes. Um, I like the and visuals. And kind of ultimately pointless. I don't know if it was pointless. I, mean, I feel like it was... I guess so. Like, what did Absalar and them Absalar and Crocus by... go back to, to uh, oh, Quantali? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. The get, Shadow they, Throne they takes back. him, though. I think it wasn't the Azza yeah. house. They like show up Shadow Throne's like, okay, let's go. And then Kalam and Manala like, go to uh, babysit, and then because Absalar or Shadow Throne says you'll be rewarded for something, and then uh, Absalar and Crocus and one other go, oh, and her dad get yeah. taken to the coast, like back to the, um, her Hotel, like home, yeah. right? Itko Khan, I think, was Itko Khan. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that we've seen the last of them? I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. Because I, I don't see. I mean, I guess Absalar like, is still is a Absalar sort of con- be conduit. I don't know. Yeah, I would like to see is more. Crocus from them, and her huh? gonna get it. I really together. liked I really liked Crocus a lot actually. I I thought Me Crocus too. Let's was talk kind about... of like a I just thought it was a nice like balance to everything. Like he kind of called Fiddler out on stuff and he was just kind of like kind of like playing the straight man to uh like the whole situation. I feel like he was kind of the, almost the voice of reason a lot of times even though Fiddler really is the voice of reason with like yeah. a, with the, the amount of like experience that he has. But also I feel like totally. there's a certain like I feel like Fiddler's a, like a little bit like jaded. You know, in in his own way, like he's very kind of like I've seen everything, kid. Like we just gotta like blow shit up and keep moving forward. Right, right, Crocus right. Just like ah, man, like you are more so much to deal will with. solve that problem. I remember when Iskarl pussed during the last thing? He was like, and a young a young man or whatever goes to Temerel to um, become a man or not. And I think Crocus did become a man over the course of this book. He like realized, but he he never lost his like innocence really, you know, which I think is one of the reasons that Absalar kind of kept 
him by her side because she realizes like I need his innocence. His innocence reminds her of what she just lost and like has no hope of regaining. And so I think that their partnership is kind of like a uh, he's going to kind of save her, you know, by reminding oh, her about the good. And so she's not just an assassin who was killed or who was taken over by a god and and used for all sorts of dastardly deeds. It really works. I like Crocus and Absolar a lot. Um, one character that I'm not a huge fan of in this in this book is is Carl Fust. I don't think it's bad or anything. I I think that obviously this is like one of those cases where uh, Erickson obviously knows way more about this. He's trying to he's trying to do something here with him. Um, it's just it he bounced right off of me. Like it's just every time he was talking, I was just like, and I know it's important. It's just kind of one of those things where just the package that he was put in just didn't resonate with me. I don't like the way he was talking. It felt um, really frustrating to try to understand anything. Maybe that was the point. It was a frustrating reading experience, knowing that a lot of the stuff that his Carl Fuss was saying was really important, but it was just gibberish to me. And it was just, um, it just made for kind of a frustrating reading experience whenever he was talking. Yeah. He was kind of there for like the comedic relief, but it, the fact that he was like really. talking out loud to himself, then everyone was like looking at him and he'd be like, what are you guys t looking at? And it was like, yeah. it was kind of overused. And I felt like it was just a little like cheap. It just like maybe, wasn't funny. Really. Maybe it was just I, like, I'm, cool. Okay. I'm hoping that Escarl Puss, like, you know, with more reads of the books that take place in seven cities and stuff, or maybe, I don't know, maybe ends up in Ganabacus in the next book or something. I have no idea. I, um, maybe it'll start making more sense, but yeah, that was probably like one of the weaker parts of the book for me personally. Um, so right at the end, like Escarl Pust goes back to his mansion and I don't know if we've seen the, or not his mansion, but his little like abode. I don't know if we've ever seen, if we've seen the end of him or not. He was a confusing character. Like I said, so many people died and I kind of wish that he was um, ranked amongst them, but we do learn why his, he has an aversion to spiders because we learn at the end that Majora, who is a divers who transforms oh, yeah. into a bunch of spiders, um, is his <laughs> wife and so that's why uh that's why he has an aversion to spiders i guess or why he has a phobia of them oh yeah i uh yeah i didn't really put that together but it seems so obvious now that you said something all right so i want to talk about something that happens um after the vathar crossing situation um where a bunch of people die i know i'm kind of going back to this but it, it was um i feel like it was a really, a really important part of the book probably one of the coolest sections yeah, it was one of the coolest sections, but it was kind of in the aftermath. Um, and I think that, first of all, Erickson beautifully puts uh, how it probably, how it must feel to go through an event that traumatizing. You know what I mean? Like the, the like I think Erickson is really, really good at kind of like capturing um, just how horrible the aftermath of that would actually be, and like kind of the headspace that everybody's in. Not only just after this crossing, but multiple battles, six months of traveling through the desert with thousands of people dying and screaming and crying. Just it's the worst. It's hell. Like it's it's absolutely hellish. Um, and so Duiker is talking with uh, Lol, I believe, and Lol is basically like you know Lol has already kind of despaired a lot. Um, and been through it. Um, but Lull is basically like, what are, how do we even deal with this? You know what I mean? I think he, he said, quote, totally. how to answer this. I must know Duiker or else I, else I might go mad else I go mad. And Duiker said, sleight of hand. And Lull says, what? So Duiker says, think of the sorcery we've seen in our lives. 
the vast unbridled deadly power we've witnessed unleashed driven to awe and horror then think of a trickster those you saw as a child the games of illusion and artifice they could play out with their hands and so bring wonder to your eyes uh and so i think what duiker is trying to say is like <laughs> think, uh, this is just my interpretation of it but i think what he's and this is this is reinforced by the following thing that happens with coltane with the sappers later but i think what duiker is trying mm -hmm. to say is like we need to we need to um you know like find what joy we can in in small little tricks you know what i mean like it, if, if if it's all we've got it's all we've got you know like i mean like lie to, like lie to yourself essentially you know what i mean like if it's really or, like, or take pleasure in the moment in the yeah, moment or, victory like we may lose the war but we may lose the battle but we won this war and we should yeah. celebrate there's a scene following this where coltane um accidentally demotes a sapper when he's trying to promote him because coltane's just like doesn't can't know what every single person's rank is and they're like uh uh fist uh you just demoted that guy and he was just like oh right. okay sorry and then he like tries to promote the next person and it's just like this funny exchange and everybody's kind of laughing and it's like this moment of levity like after this really horrible thing and then like lol kind of like looks at him at duiker and he's like oh i kind of see what you're saying here like we gotta appreciate these moments and like you know uh, I think that the reason that Duiker brought up sorcery was that he was like, yes, all of this sorcery is like this horrible, like really heavy thing. But then also there are like magicians on the street that'll make you laugh. You know what I mean? So it's like, it, it's like different sides of different coins and things are just, uh, some, some things are really, really fucking horrible. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, yeah. like right after it, you know, the, something kind of a little bit funny can happen even. You know, I just I really like that whole part of it. I just uh, I really like Duiker. Me too. And like the whole play between them, I think that's pretty universal as far as like I've definitely had friends who have been in the military and have encountered horrific things. And I don't question think that to they. Ask. Sorry, yeah, and I don't think they make light. No, no, you're fine. But I, you know, I, many times the the people who are the most calloused and who make light and brevity, even like sometimes some very inappropriate jokes about like human life and death, are the people who are responsible for taking it. And I think like it's a pretty universal soldiery way of helping to kind of deal with that much, much suffering and death. Like it says the river Vathar's mouth gushed blood and corpses into Dojal's uh, sea for close to a week after the slaughter. And to the fishermen, it was known as like the time of the sharks, sharks or something like that. that. <laughs> yeah. And so, and there's another little bit of levity that uh, Coltane is like, after a while, he's like, wait, do the sappers even have a commander <laughs> like he like spends yeah. the whole book trying to like find him and they're like no no we got one oh, for sure guy. and then he's yeah. like i'm pretty sure they don't have one and they don't want one <laughs> well they do have one but he's like he he doesn't go to the meetings or anything like even coltane's like you haven't been showing up to council meetings and the guy's just like i don't know man like i, <laughs> I don't really it's just <laughs> right. the whole exchange is really funny um and I, I kind of mentioned this in like one of the first episodes we did on malazan is that I mean, like, yeah, these books are so brutal. Like, they're so, they're like just downright difficult to read sometimes. I mean, we've got crucifixions here. We've got children dying. That was a big thing that Duiker said. Uh, you know, I, we forgot to cover that on the chapter before this, or the book before this, I should say. But Duiker, you know, like one of the main quotes for Deadhouse Gates is children are dying, you know, and it's, it's a really good quote. I mean, like, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of meaning behind it. You know, this idea that, um, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever reasons are happening, whatever reasons, 
you can give for any of this stuff happening at the end of the day children are dying you know and it's just it's right. really powerful you know it's a really powerful thing to read um so the, all that being said though i mean like with how heavy all these books are and like the subject matter that we're reading about the themes that we're dealing with i think that it's really awesome that the, the these soldiers are asking each other these kinds of questions like i thought it was really amazing that lowell was like dude how are we how do we even deal with this like how self-aware of erickson as an author to make his characters that self-aware it's really impressive you know i mean and i think that's um kind of for me personally as a reader that's what i'm looking for with like with this kind of heaviness um you kind of say right, with in, insane amounts like, of violence yeah, it's needed it, like we need this kind of um like part afterwards like we need this kind of like, right like this breather this vibe check where we're like okay let's process this let's think about it more let's ask ourselves why we're doing any of this or why any of this matters and it's those are really difficult questions to answer you know we mentioned multiple times in Faithful and the Fallen after these crazy battles that were equally many times as bloody, uh, some of them not quite as much, uh, but like that was really missing, we felt at least, uh, was kind of the like regret and the trauma and like it was just like, okay, we're going to keep on training and whacking each other with swords. It's all good. And it's like, man, this kid's like never killed anyone before. He just killed like 30 guys and he's just fine the next day. And at least Steven Erickson tries to kind of face it a little bit and like talk about it and bring it up, which is, I think, necessary for me to like really believe the characters because like, man, this one mess you up. There's children being slaughtered around them, yeah. you know, to John to John Gwynn's credit. I mean, I feel like he does uh, with Corbin a couple times. But I, I, you're totally right. And I did complain about it in, in our Faithful and Fallen episodes where I did feel <laughs> like I'm, I'm with you there. I mean, I do feel like there are parts of those books where it's just like just so much slaughter and then it's just like okay chapter is wrapped up here we go and it's just like dude jesus like but anyway um the the reason that with malazan that i think that this is so well done and that i think is going to carry us through these books despite how heavy and how dark a lot of what's going on is is that uh, number one we're asking these kinds of questions uh number two there is a lot of humor in these books like there there are a lot of really funny parts um that are kind of like sprinkled in and there's just like a, such a, there's so much humanity and uh, I mean I'm using the word humanity but there are all kinds of different races um but you know what I mean I'm using I just mean like, right 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 like people are more Anyone's complicated sentience, than, they're all fighting for each other yeah I mean like people are more complicated than the plot here people are more complicated than the people they're killing uh than than just the the mindless slaughter and um I mean and ultimately their relationship is given as the reason to go on almost always like all that being said I mean I do think that if someone was reading this and they were having a really difficult time with it and they didn't want to keep reading it, I would 100% understand, regardless of any kind of yeah. levity that I'm giving Erickson credit for or any kind of meaning that I think he's trying to squeeze out of this, which I do appreciate as a reader. I think that's enough for me, but I think that for a lot of people, like I could totally understand why like a vivid description of what it feels like to get crucified would probably kind of turn you off of reading these. And, and it, I mean, like really... It's, botfly scene it's if you stop there i to totally read. respect that yeah i mean i think um <laughs> i've heard that dead house gates is like kind of uh, like peak <laughs> like like violence and I mean, dead house yeah. dead house gates captures something like the other ones have a war for sure yeah, there's yeah. a lot of it there's one character taking on an entire village but like 
there's a certain brutality this, to this book. Yeah, yeah, this captures in the chain of dogs. It really captures like a desperation and like a meaningless and like a like they didn't have to die. Pormqualls could have sent out his troops to rescue all of these refugees. There's like help, how many die know? in the Battle of uh, Vathar? It's like twenty thousand or something. 20, Most of people. them children. Yeah, it's really and we awful. can't move on from the Battle of uh, Vathar without. Giving a nod to old Sormo Inath, oh, who yeah. took one and a major way for the team. Yeah. Um, and to give a little bit of his history, he was a reincarnation of the greatest Wiccan warlock from the clan that Coltane was from. And he lived to be in, like an old man. And then he was captured, unfortunately, um, by Lassine and spiked on the walls of Unta. And it took, apparently, it is rumored to have taken 11 crows to take his uh, soul for no single creature could hold it. And then uh, and then he was reincarnated into Sormo by the same name. And then Coltane was like, recognized him. It was like, hey, and then took him into battle with him. What's interesting is that is brought up right as Coltane is dying. Um, the thing about Sormo and the 11 crows, because the sky is filled with crows when Coltane dies. Yeah. yeah so I was just like, oh, that's right? so fucking Like how cool. many that's crows so did cool. it take? Oh my God. It's so yeah. awesome. And like, then and then like I think I don't know if it was actually Corbolodom himself, but there was just like these giant like just mage waves going through the crows because they were trying to keep the crows away from Coltane's body and like and then like when they shot Coltane through the forehead, which was just like oh man, it's so crazy. Uh, what a shot! Was that Squinty? So his name was Squint. Squint, there we go. And I love how Squint, Squint is just like, wait, you're asking me to shoot Coltane? And they're like, just shoot him. Just shoot him right shoot now. Him. <laughs> oh, man. I said there was uh, that we kind of hit the height of grizzliness. Um, as my memory kind of replays some of the story, though, <laughs> uh, we kind of get to some Panny and Seer stuff. I know you haven't gotten that far, but there's some there. There is more horrificness to come, people. Uh, that is for darn sure. Yeah, that wasn't me like trying to like uh, encourage people to read on if you're uncomfortable. Like, definitely don't keep reading if you if you don't want to, obviously. But um, I do. Well, think there is like, more of the same. Yeah. And oh man, it's just I can't. I don't want to give you spoilers, but there's some there's some stuff coming up. Man. I have to keep reading. I have to know. I have to. I have to get to the end of this now. Like I said, the only way out is through. Okay, so as we begin to wrap up here, and I'm sure we might rabbit trail for a while longer, but I want to ask you at the very end, the epilogue of this, there is a woman who is like, "There is no soul inside the baby inside of me," and then she gets told to stop. She's about to drink a flask that will abort the baby. And then she's told to like stop. I think a bunch of crows come and engulf her. Yep. And then she's like, oh, I can there's a the soul baby. in there. Yeah. And the child kicks or whatever. Is, is that Coltane? Do that's we Coltane. Think? Yeah. I think okay. that's Coltane. Okay. Yeah. And it was like specifically mentions that she's like a tribes woman. So maybe he gets returned to like, he gets to live a peaceful life in his next one, maybe. I don't or know. Or he comes back because I, I want more. Or he comes Coltane. back. Um, Man, his, yeah, we've uh, had a lot of characters in the belly of Bruin, like Tattersail. Tattersail, yeah. Right? I guess just her, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, we, like, there is <laughs> we a got certain, done. There's a certain, like, you know, re recurring element of, I guess you could call, like, rebirth or um, a different incarnation or something. I mean, like, you have a Hairlock in book one, Shaik. too. Shaik, for sure. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah. Even with kind Duiker, of, his soul gets yeah, taken. I, actually, as we are kind of wrapping up, I feel like we should talk about Felicin, um and the uh, turning into Shaikh. Shaik. Um, so I think you had touched on this a little bit, but I did think it was pretty interesting how, like, Felicin is not Shaikh reborn, ex like, exactly. 
you know? I think right, she's, fell, and, she's remade. There's like a part where Haborik, I think, was talking to her and, and, he, and he was like, were you... Did you know about this? Like when we were in Skullcuff and stuff and Felicin was just like, no, it's been kind of like just this like gradual thing that's always just... I don't know. I can't remember exactly what she said, but it wasn't... There wasn't like a moment where she was like, aha, now I am Shaikh Reborn. Um, but I did I think kinda that had was to reread a few sections yeah. being like, when was that moment? Yeah, I don't know. And I it think, just like never. Yeah, I don't really know. Uh, I think it's just like a thing that you just kind of got to go with. Um, but totally. I mean, I, I love it because it's setting up Phyllis and versus Tavor, which is also really interesting because we know as the readers and kind of Phyllis knows too that Tavor kind of like masterminded everything that happened with Phyllis and the slave camps and stuff. And uh, with the calling of no, the nobility and like trying to make sure that you know a talon was in there uh, to get Felicen out of there and Tavor kind of had a plan for all this and I think that Felicen because of what she's gone through like she's such a brilliantly written character man like real I mean the, the chapters the, the her point of view chapters in this specific book of this volume I wasn't I didn't love them you know like they were just kind I mean, of she's insufferable but I mean like dude like she is for a, good reason an absolutely brilliantly written character I think one of the most brilliantly written characters we've seen in this series so far because even though she I think on a certain level understands the 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 actual reality of her situation as as regarding um with regard to Tavor she's also been such through such a process you know what i mean like she's been through such a traumatic mm -hmm. series of events over these months and months of what's been going on and she's kind of like influenced by this like like spiritual leader of this revolution like there's just so much going on with felson so like the big like felson tavor super bowl is about to happen like i'm I'm very excited to see more about that i was really trying to find something cool that rhymed with rumble because i was like it's a rumble in the jungle desert nah <laughs> but i failed miserably so i think her like evolution as a character because she goes um it's pretty cool because she's at the first half of this book is arguably one of the most frustrating characters to be around she's just like like bad things are happening to everybody and she's like consistently trying to bring down bowden bring down heberick just talking smack and is like really kind of given up her will to live and only exist to try to tear others down. And you're just like, man, is she kind of lost? And then she goes through some more horrific things and then stumbles across Leoman and Toblakai. And then they're like, Hey, you're actually Shaikh reborn. And she's like, okay, I guess. But then also she's like, I'm getting uh, like preternatural, like um, what's the word I'm looking at paranormal, like information into my brain from Felicin or from um, Shaikh. And so she kind of gets taken over by Sheik, but she also, she uh she doesn't open the book instead of opening the book like she was supposed to, which I think would have reborn Shaikh. She like makes a deal with the whirlwind goddess that's like, no, we're gonna work together. Though, um, who's really sad? I think it's it's uh, Fiddler. Fiddler's really sad when because at one point Shaikh uh Felicin is like, no, it's fine. Fel Ellison's still in here. It's not just Shaikh. And that makes Fiddler even more sad to being like, no, but a lot of her is gone. Because she's trying to comfort him and Fiddler's like, nope, not having it. Like, you took over a lot of her. So, and it's weird that the thing that she really kept was her hatred and revenge for Tavor, which I'm stoked as part of the story because it'll just be cool. But like, it's also kind of sad, you know, it's like. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Like, even regardless of Tavor's intentions, she still went through what she went through. You know yeah. I mean? So it's like. I can, I can totally Lord didn't see. handle that the best. No, but I want to hear her side. 
of the story too maybe yeah you know i mean like i would have said lacine wasn't the best at the beginning but now we're learning like maybe there's more to lacine than meets the eye you know but like yeah, but i don't it, know it's just kind of are a weird thing though you know like they're yeah they're tricky. yeah like I did just find it like kind of like how Ikarium was ultimately a uh, tale of sorrow and kind of a tragedy. I think Felsen was kind of too, and that like one of the largest parts of her that remains is her revenge and her hatred for it. It's just kind of a sad, yeah, yeah, uh, through line, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think you could argue like it, it's uh, like how else would you feel after going through all that, you know? Right. Maybe that's why she adopts the orphan and names her Phyllis in the Younger as like maybe Phyllis in the Younger will be like a representation of maybe. who she could have been and like she'll we'll find hope in in her, you know. Oh, man, I'm getting tired and uh my brain Me too. So, is there anything else you want to go oh, man? I'm, this, this No, is... I just kind of want to say so where much. we've left everybody, right? So we've got sure, everybody yeah. in Arin. We've got Tavor on the way. Like she's en route. Yeah. And uh, Pom- Pornpole died. He rushed out at the end and got that come up. Oh, I forgot like, about that part. Yeah, so <laughs> satisfying. Yeah, that was pretty satisfying. And also so sad because Duiker was with him. Totally. Yeah. And Pornpole was like, "Come on, I'll show you how a real man does it." And Duiker's like, "Dude, I've been with Coltane. <laughs> like, you don't even know what you're talking about, Pornquel. Um, We've got Kalam babysitting. <laughs> we've got uh, Fiddler. Yeah, Where's Fiddler? Reenlisted. He reenlisted. That's right, and he's joining up with Tavor. And then we've got Absalar, maybe gone for good, maybe not, with Crocus and her father back where she started on Itko Khan or wherever that is. Yeah. And uh, Whiskey Jack still going down to meet up with um, Kaladin Brood to fight the Panion Seer, I believe. That is where Do we I have are that? leaving. So yeah, it seems like we are leaving Seven Cities for Ganapakis for Book Three. For anybody that wasn't aware of that um and i think we jump back over to seven cities in book four house of chains um is that what it's called yeah did you mean book chains. three book four uh where we go so it's it's um like gardens of the moon is genabacus and then dead house gates is seven cities memories of ice is oh. genabacus again and then sure sure house of chains is uh, seven cities again at least that's, to my knowledge that's what happens i believe in memories of ice I could have my timeline right, but I believe the first half of that book is one of my favorite parts of all of the books that I've read, only up until eight. And uh, and yeah, we'll we'll come back to Sheik. But it's weird. I think we do take a, quite a while to kind of focus on one character, which is unlike the entire rest of this series. And uh, it's my favorite character, probably in all of fantasy. So I'm pretty stoked to read that. I hear we're uh, we're gonna meet somebody named Carso Orlong. Oh, and his wooden sword, man. And uh, it's uh, he's the best. I love it. And he has this cool character progression. Um, and it's really, like I said, it's a rare treat to have Steven Erickson kind of laser focus in on one character for like back to back to back chapters until he gets up to a certain point and then we go on with the rest of the story. But uh, it's a delightful little respite. And man, I fall in love with Carsa. I'm so excited to get back to some of the bridge burners uh, apart from Fiddler and Kalam. I want to see Quick Ben again, Whiskey Jack, Mallet uh trots everybody and um i don't know if yeah. we get very much of them in the next book ah, really sure. well it'd be really cool <laughs> if we did but even if we don't it's fine i'm excited for memories of ice uh, i'm Good excited for do. this whole series i mean this is definitely a lot i mean thank you everybody this is probably came out uh if you're listening to this right now it kind of came out kind of late in the day on sunday uh i've had a pretty wild week 
and Chad has had a pretty wild week, and uh, we are trying our very best to stay on as tight a schedule as possible, but these books uh, take a lot of prep time. Chad and I have to get all our notes together, we have to get the recap together, and uh, then the editing, you know. So Right, and, and prior patience. to an episode, Evan and I, we've gotten pretty good, like, we can kind of, like, look into each other's eyes and just be like, bleep, boop, bleep, yep, ready, 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 and get, for, get on it, you know, but with these episodes, we actually spend time beforehand being like, okay, we should try to talk about this. We should try to, because there's so yeah. many things happening. If we just allow ourselves to go willy nilly, like you think what we just gave you was a little all over the place going back and forth from time. I'm like, <laughs> no, we organized before this. <laughs> or we organized. <laughs> it would have been way worse. So uh, yeah. we are trying our best here. So thanks for sticking with us. And if we're wrong, as always, go berate us in the Discord. We do love everyone's involvement and that everyone is sticking with us because, as we said, the only way out is through i'm so excited to, to keep on going oh me too yeah these books are this is going to be what we're reading for most of the year and uh yeah i mean i'm a little tired <laughs> already nope, not allowed to say that yet <laughs> oh my gosh we're like not we're in the meat of it now Dude, though carsa is about to freshen you up okay cool. we're about to get some fresh some freshness with carsa orlong he's like a like a what's that drink that uh has vodka and like mint in it oh man i can't mint really julep anyway uh not a mint julep uh no what is that fucking Anyway, he's like a he's like a cold he's like an oasis in the desert, you know. Mojito. Oh, that's what I was thinking. No, he's no, a mojito. No, thank you. Yeah, that's what I was. And mojitos are so good. Yeah, they're really good. <laughs> anyway, uh, everybody, thank you so much for. If you're at the end of this episode, then uh, you've probably been at the end of all the other episodes. We really appreciate not only your attention but your patience, and uh, you're the best audience ever. So thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode for book one of volume three, Memories of Ice. Oh my gosh, we're in there now. Memories of ice. We're we're all the way in there. But until then, everybody. I'm so excited, Evan. Thanks for uh, joining joining me on this one. It's always a delight to talk to you. I'm still not sick of it. Two years in, man. I don't know. I don't know. No. We got we got Evan's books like, to read. I'm pretty sick of you. So. No, no, we got books to read. <laughs> all right, that's it. That's that's the Let's end of the episode. It. <laughs> it's officially tomorrow or almost. Officially, okay, uh, everybody, happy reading. And all that jazz. Oh my god, I'm so tired. This episode really sad. <laughs> <laughs> For Evan, uh, happy reading and bye everybody. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs>